first two callers are going to be AJ and Don, so let's just get started. Uh, good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bob. You doing fine this morning? You know, so far as I know, I have not had any negative situations so far this morning, so I'm very positive about all that. Well, we're going to have a very brief situation, and then it's going to be over with <laughs> before you know it. Uh, you know, I told you I was going to plant those marigolds in the right. six packs. When I get them, do I set them out in full sun or, or uh, have them shade in the afternoon? You mean when you plant them in the ground or when you first plant your seed? When I put them in the six packs, the seed goes in the six pack. Yeah, I would have them uh, with a little afternoon shade. And the only real reason about that is just the the sun's going to dry them out so quickly. You'd be out there watering three times a day to keep them watered if you had those six packs out in the sun. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put them where they get morning sun, afternoon shade. But pretty much as soon as those little plants get started, get up an inch or so tall, then they're gonna move out to the sun. So they'll be nice strong vigorous plants and uh you just have to keep up with the watering as we always do in south texas but no i i'd in the germination period i'd have morning sun afternoon shade once those little plants have really shown their faces and started to grow up uh then i get them out in the full sun the thing is there's a hormone in the stems actually in every cell in the stems of the plant that makes the cells stretch and if you're not getting enough sunlight to break that down this particular hormone is broken down by sunlight uh if you're not getting enough then you end up with a taller thinner skinnier plant when you give them lots of sun they stay store short and stocky and that's what you want your marigolds your tomatoes and all those other seeds you're starting to be so uh little protection to get them started and then put them out in that uh warm harsh world they're going to move into uh in the very near future all righty uh on coleuses this year uh, my a daughter has them in the you know i'll plant some for her up in the austin area and i've got mine here there have you had any luck that they're not growing they started off slowly because the temperatures were so much chillier than usual and were having so many cloudy days. They've taken off pretty well. In fact, they've grown more in the past two weeks than they've grown in the previous two months in the ones that uh, I have under cultivation. So, yeah, kind of experienced that starting out, but now you ought, to, you ought to be seeing some good growth on them. All right. Okay. Well, Bob, I do thank you, and I'm going to let you let you get on with the next gentleman. Well, I will just do that. I've got one line ringing and one more to talk to. So, AJ, have a wonderful weekend. You too, Bob. Thank, <laughs> thank you, you sir. Goodbye. All right. Next up's going to be Don. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm off to a good start. How about you this morning? Uh, pretty well. Uh, Monday through Friday, I'm usually almost at work at this time, but my body knows when it's Saturday. <laughs> well, as as we say around here, the nice thing about radio is you only have to sound awake. You don't have to look awake. I, I've done a little early morning television. Let's just say I like radio a whole lot better. <laughs> right. So a few questions, a couple crate moral questions, but okay. before that, if you don't mind, um, you mentioned a outfit out of Bernie that does gutters that you like. Right. Uh, what was the name of that? It's Williamson. Williamson, they're actually a roofing company, but I, quite honestly, don't tell if I said this, I think they do better gutters than they do roofs. But uh, they did a beautiful job. They recently redid the gutters way the heck up in the air on my 100-year-old home, and I was 
very, very pleased with them. But it's it's Williamson, probably Williamson Roofing, but uh, gutters are something they really specialize in. Okay. And also, uh, any experience with any uh, lightning protection uh, outfits? Absolutely. There is a company called Bonded Lightning Protection. Yep. And they do work pretty much throughout the area. They are the folks who uh, originally put the lightning protection on my home and my barn. Um, they most recently, you know, 25 or 20 years later, however long it's been, uh, they put the lightning protection on a new groundwater district office up in Bernie. Uh, they do a lot of lightning protection around there. They're uh, what all they do has changed over the years. When they did my home, basically they just put, they call them points, little things up to intersect the, intercept the lightning bolts. They just put those in and cables down to where they, they sunk some plates down into the ground to diffuse that current. Now they are uh, have started doing some whole house protection on interior wiring. Found this out when they uh, did our groundwater district office. They do a much more complete job but they can do as little or as much as you want uh, as a matter of fact uh, when southwest metal roofing systems put the roof on my home a few years ago they of course had to take off the lightning rods actually came back down and reinstalled them to be sure they were 100 percent right so um, lots of experience and nothing but good things to say about bonded lightning protection Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And don't so don't forget to, to let that. your insurance company know because uh, if you're doing this on your home uh, or outbuildings or anything, it will earn you a discount on your homeowner's insurance. Right. Okay. So on to the crate myrtle questions. Okay. So I had a uh, a young uh, red rocket crate myrtle in the back part of my property that kind of just grows wild, and uh, okay. a young nephew <laughs> who uh, was cutting the the grass out there and he just ran the thing over and took it down to a two or three inches tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it started coming back. So I, you know, I watered it and I, I used the growing green on it and now it's back up to about three feet tall. And the nephews uh, learned his lesson. <laughs> yes. I, I pointed it out to him, but he knows now and <laughs> I've since uh, marked it. So You're very good. The same thing. So just the question is, uh, anything to worry about with... Nothing whatsoever. Nothing whatsoever. Uh, Crepe myrtles, red rocket, and the others are cutting grown. They are not grafted, so we're not worried about a rootstock sprouting out. And that plant will be just as strong as it would have had it not suffered this little setback, so to speak. So... Uh, no, your only decision on that crepe myrtle is going to be, do I, do you want it to be a tree or do you want it to be a bush? A crepe myrtle's normal growth habit is, you know, as a bushy plant, uh, pretty much from the ground up. I kind of, most of the time, I like to go sort of half and half, so to speak. I like to trim away a lot of the lower foliage so that I'm looking at the bare trunks and then the foliage and flowers up on top. But I don't like a single trunk uh, crepe myrtle and don't like a single trunk most, any sort of ornamental plant like that. Because if we do get severe storms, 
And, you know, when you get a single trunk, I've seen the top snapped out of them, and then you're just sitting there with a ugly-looking bare pole sticking up. I like to prune them so they've developed three or four or five trunks together. And uh, this, I think, makes a much stronger plant, gives you a little bit of uh, protection from potential storm damage, and yet it gives you that good, clean look. You've got the nice, strong bare stems. You've got all those, in the case of Red Rock, just super deep, deep, deep colored uh, flowers up on top. So no no problems whatsoever, but it's going to be up to you and the pruning shears to decide what overall shape the plant takes. Make sense? It does. Thank you. So last question. Uh, I just got a, another crepe myrtle. It's a dynamite. And I'm going to put this in a raised bed in the back part of my property. So how deep should that raised bed be and how how big should I make it dimensionally? What uh, what area do you live in, Don? Uh, the Encino area. Okay. Evans. Yep. Are you sitting on just a shelf of rock, or do you have some soil underneath? The back part of my property is uh, just a couple inches of soil okay. on rock. And is it like a shelf of rock, or is it just a lot of big rocks? Uh, if you went to dig them out, you could actually pry most of them out of the ground, but they're a pretty good size. It's a shelf. Okay. And so looking around, do you have native oaks on the property or any other native vegetation? Uh, there are. Uh, not on my property, but uh, in my surrounding. And areas. and do those trees have pretty good-sized big trunks, or are they skinny little things with three- or four-inch diameter trunks? Uh, there's a mixture. Uh, there's some very large oaks uh, okay. down the street, and there's some smaller ones uh, closer by. Okay, the the reason I ask is when you see nothing, when you look out there and every tree out there is just, you know, is a three, four, five, six inch tree and there are lots and lots of them, that tells me there's nothing but rock down there. When you look out there and you see a few big majestic oaks mixed in, that tells me that there are a lot of fissures in that rock and that tree has been able to get its roots down into soil around through you know the rock shelf and um so it sounds like you've got a lot of rock but it's not just one solid you know three mile long piece of limestone so uh in creating a, a raised bed i would make it i would say a minimum of 10 inches high because long term uh, those crepe myrtles are going to find their their roots are going to find their way down through the rock. They are going to be able to establish themselves uh, somewhat deeper. If you didn't have that, then I'd make it you know probably 24 inches high or so. But I think you know 15, 18 inches high is going to be plenty. Um, the choice is yours. A three by three foot square would be adequate. If you want to make a bigger raised bed just so you can plant some other things around, maybe add some oh, some new gold lantana to have the yellow to show off those super dark red blooms, or maybe, gosh, there are just so many different things you could plant in there from firebush to plumbago to, you know, lots and lots of other plants. So uh, minimum size, I would say, would be 3 by 3, 18 inches high. If you want to go bigger or deeper, uh, that's just fine, too. What What do you plan to build your raised beds out of? Uh, I was just want to put some uh, some sort of stone product around it. Okay, yeah, stone is uh, is a real good way to go. I was going to tell you to stay away from treated wood because that blasted stuff rots out so quickly. 
Uh, if you go with any wood product, uh, I'm very pleased with this product they call Trex, T-R-E-X, which is uh, sort of your synthetic wood, and that stuff will last forever with rotting out. But my favorite is stone. If you go to any of the good stone yards, Stone and Soil Depot happens to be my favorite. Um, there's also Garza Masonry and Stone up on the north edge of Bernie, and Joel does a real good job up there. But you can actually get chunks of uh uh, it's it's a cut limestone, so it's flat on two surfaces, top and bottom surface, and then it's rough on the other edges. It looks real good, but because it's flat, uh, it is real easy to stack, and you can make a make a very attractive planter out of it. Like other stone products, they they sell it by the pound, and it's really quite reasonable. I've I've bought several chunks of it lately, uh, building step ups. One of them into my new greenhouse, the other into a new room I was adding, or when I was redoing the inside of a room in my barn. And so uh, you can you can get just native stone, and you can stack it, mortar together, dry stack it, or whatever. But uh, some of this uh, cut limestone is just really attractive and really easy to work with. Whether you dry stack it, whether you mortar it together, it's totally up to you. I would just dry stack it. I mean, it's heavy enough that it will stay in place, and uh, it'll make a make a very attractive and very durable, very long-life structure for you. Okay. That's last last much. piece of unsolicited advice I would give you is, um, <clears throat> especially with your new dynamite crepe myrtle, it's probably too deep in the container. It's close to 100% of the crepe myrtles that we buy in our nursery and obviously other nurserymen too. Close to 100% of them are buried too deeply in the pot, and it's a lot easier to expose that root flare at the time you're planting than to have to go back and do it later, which is probably what you should do um, with the other one at some point that uh, went through its little bit of trauma. But those plants will be much more resilient. They'll give you better flowering, They'll give you a much stronger plant. If you have those trunks exposed all the way down to where the big roots flare out, and you're likely going to find a bunch of little fibrous roots in those upper layers of soil, just cut those away because you do want to get down to where you see the major roots. Those should be right at or slightly above ground level for the best long-term success with those crepe myrtles. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate it, and I'll let you go, and you have a good day. Well, you do the same, Don. Appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right, now it's uh, Richard's turn. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm just off to a good start. I hope you are as well. I am now. Thank you. <laughs> um, I wanted to get your thoughts. I want to cover up uh, about two or three foot of my slab on my house, um, and my wife wants some white roses. Okay. And so I live in the hill country over here, and um, I wanted to see if you recommended any that uh, would do okay and then how to prepare the soil and, and so forth. And um, is uh, do you have an issue with deer, or are you deer-proofed? No, it'll be in my backyard, so okay. Fenced. Okay, because deer will eat roses, thorns, and all. They're one of their favorite dietary items. So if you're going to grow roses, you, uh, you're going to have to be able to keep the deer out. And uh, this exposed section of slab, what uh, what orientation is it? What direction does it face? It'll be facing uh, west, so okay. full sun. Oh, so we've got full sun. Um, you're in good shape. Um, they're... Your roses should do very well there. I would uh, add a good deal of compost. If you're working with native soil, I'd probably 
you know, aim for a mix uh, of two, say, two parts uh, soil, one part compost, and that'll give you, you know, that'll give you real good, uh, a real good place to start. As far as uh, varieties, you said she wanted white. Yes, if they have, if there's one that would be viable. Well, there is. There's actually one of the knockouts out there. They call it white out. Um, I and, and again. <laughs> <laughs> far be it from me it, it's funny i've had this conversation more than once recently and uh one of my favorite jokes is uh, if a man speaks in the woods and no woman is present to hear him is he still wrong but uh it's <laughs> if she wants white you should go with white i probably uh especially on a west wall that white color is going to be kind of lost um I, if it were me, I would be looking for a little bit more brilliant color. Now, on an east-facing wall, or depending on what the material your home is built of, I love white roses. I have one of them in front of my barn. But as a foundation planting, it's um, it's going to just kind of fade into the background. It's not going to stand out and just tell you, you know, hey, this is a beautiful area over here around the foundation of my home. So consider and discuss and decide you know what what you really want to have out there i just would choose a color other than white but if white's special to her then a wise man will get some nice white roses well let me i guess <laughs> let me tell you this part because she wanted white roses because she loves cut the cut flower part of it i yeah. just wanted um something that would cover the slab so it's more practical for me okay um and then she's the one that would want to cut those okay there are other roses that are that probably would be better as cut roses. Um, most of the roses that are sold, at least the really, really hardy roses, are going to be the sort of multiflora types that have big clusters of flowers. And I'm not sure if that's what she's looking for. She's looking for a rose that uh, can have a single long stem. She's probably going to go with a grafted rose. Oh gosh, I don't. It's been a long time since I dealt with them. There's one called Iceberg. There, there's several good white roses out there. I probably send her over to Fanix to look at the best selection. But uh, um, do some homework and and if she wants a cutting rose, uh, you certainly have a good place to grow it. Uh, growing the cut roses can involve a little bit of what we call disbudding. You're gonna have to do a little bit of pruning up and down each little stem as it grows to get that long rose stem where they grow these things commercially, and they're virtually none grown in the United States anymore. There used to be a big rose operation in Colorado and another one in Indiana. Now they're all coming out of Central America. But they they use something that looks like a large mesh fishnet that they actually put over these things and raise it as the buds start to come up to get nice straight stems on them. I don't think she's going to be looking at that. But just growing cut roses is a little bit more work than it appears at first. But if she wants to take on that challenge, more power to her. Okay. Well, I'll do my homework on some of the varieties. <laughs> um, I should be able to keep it trained at three or four feet through pruning and so forth, or would I need to let these elevate pretty? I'd let them get a little taller. I'd say three to five is what you're looking for. Okay. That'll work. Okay. And then uh, do you have time? I know it's five. Uh, still. Yeah, five, we, this five, is a time that we, we can always take a little extra time. I've got three minutes still news, so you can have it all if okay. you want. <laughs> All right, so I know you've talked about um, strawberries will grow best, in the, or plant, it's best to plant them in the fall. That's correct. Um, the um, I bought some perennial, or I guess the ever-bearing, so I wanted to get your thoughts on, is that more 
Is that an okay variety? I've had them in the ground for at least probably uh, 10 months, uh, or probably six months now. So I wanted to see if that's a good producing strawberry or one that I should get. Well, That'd be good here's the thing. Do you want to eat a strawberry every now and then, or would you like to have a nice serving of strawberries? If you want to have a nice serving of strawberries, you're not going to get it off the Everbearings because they're just going to – uh, they're just going to scatter the berries out over a period of time. I much prefer a variety that gives you a fairly heavy crop of berries, even though they don't bloom over a long period of time. Even the so-called everbearings are not going to produce in the real hot summer or the real cold winter. So my choice is going to be, you know, one of the varieties that does tend to produce more at one time. If you can find it, there's a variety called Sequoia, which is absolutely wonderful. You'll never see it in the stores because it's too soft and juicy for them to pick it and ship it. Uh, there's another one called Tioga. There, there's several good ones out there, but my personal choice is not going to be the Everbearing because, you know, I want, a, I want a handful of strawberries, not just one here and one there. That makes sense. Would this be more of an annual plant or perennial as well? Uh, if you keep it watered through the summer months and a little mulch in the winter, they will be perennial for you. Sounds good. I think I'll try to track those down then. Very good. Oh. All right. Thanks for your help this morning, Bob. Always a pleasure. Good luck with your project, and thanks for the call this morning. <laughs> Bye. Uh, but at this point, let me just go ahead and push that button that says number one and say good morning, Faye. Good morning, Bob. Good, good morning. morning. Uh, so that's why I couldn't reach you this morning. Couldn't hear you this morning. <laughs> Apparently, so he's in there making calls. The engineers now probably waking them up. And it, you know, radio stations are amazing these days. These guys can lie in bed and push some buttons on their telephone and make all sorts of things happen over here. So I hope it'll be that easy for them to get it up and running this morning. Because no, there are a lot of folks uh, that after the sun comes up, the FCC allows the stations pattern as they call it the way the signals are sent out to change and uh the signal reaches out a lot further but yeah early i know it's uh it's kind of hard to get if you're not listening on the internet so hopefully it'll be up and running soon but i've got a loud and clear connection with you so how can i help you this morning that's good our connection's just fine um i'm trying i'm still trying to wake up (laughs) you and me both (laughs) Because I'm out there uh, outside, and I I come up with something I'm going to talk to you about. And this morning, they're a little dormant out there. But one thing I I know I was going to ask you is what we plant by seed now um, that would be a a good opportunity. We're still wet over here. but uh, You can certainly plant okra. Plenty of time to get okra, red or green, going. Uh, you can certainly plant another batch of uh, bush beans. You want to get a variety that is heat tolerant, like top crop or uh, uh, one of that's one of my favorites. Uh, oh golly, there there are two or three different ones. My my early sea uh, bush bean is uh, Tavera, which is a real long, thin, tasty bean, but it just won't take the heat. So contender top crop. Blue Lake Bush, some of those others that are a little bit more heat tolerant can go in. As um, long as you can water, and <laughs> you do have plenty of moist soil no right problem. now. Uh, cucumbers, you could plant another round of cucumbers if you like. My cucumbers still look beautiful, but I know another month they'll be fading out. So if you have the space, it sure be good to get some fresh plants started. 
And uh, same thing would be true of uh, summer squashes. If you want to plant more straight neck or crook neck yellow squash or patty pan, what they call the bush scallop or zucchinis, all of those can certainly go in. And um, we're just a couple of weeks away probably from when you will see plants out there for more uh, tomatoes and peppers and things. But seeds right now, I'm going to say okra, beans, cucumbers, squash, those are going to be the principal things I'd be planting from seed. Okay, good. Um, I'll I'll get busy in, uh, today and get all of those going again. Um, it's been a pretty good year, but I've had, the one problem I've had is those old tomato worms that uh-huh. are, that look like the vine. You right, know, those big right. ones, big old green. They're called hornworms. Oh yes, that, that's what they are, and I've had a a number of them, and the, before I know it, they kind of take <laughs> over the plant. <laughs> oh, they eat the whole plant and eat the tomatoes too. Um, yes. I, you know, I I still think that uh, the BT with a little bit of molasses added to it. I don't spray it anywhere except on uh, where those caterpillars can be active and they'll eat peppers just like they'll eat tomatoes so my peppers and my tomatoes both usually get a shot of the bt with some molasses in it and i find just one or two applications of that lasts me all season long so uh, it's a good safe product for you and as long as you're not spraying it just all over the place i think is a very good thing to do to protect your tomatoes See, I, I just some years I don't even see one. Mm-hmm. And it's strange. What, what's the life of those that they become these giant enemy? Well, <laughs> they they oh. are uh, their adult stage is a big old moth, and uh, it forms a chrysalis in the soil, which then turns into a moth. And if you've got got the moth out there, you're not going to you know, have just one hornworm, uh, you that female's probably going to lay 30 to 50 eggs in her lifetime. And so if you have one, you'll probably have several. On some years, you just don't happen to have any of the moths around. And so, you know, you'll go a season without seeing a single one, although that's somewhat unusual. But it doesn't take a lot of the moths to, uh, you know, make enough hornworms to do some damage in the garden. That's right, <laughs> and they seem to be very fast. <laughs> and they grow from being a little bitty caterpillar to a great big caterpillar very quickly. All the caterpillars do that. I've been watching with interest uh, the beautiful larvae, the black swallowtails. Uh, my business partner was out of town for a little while, and I was looking after her garden, and uh, I was happy to be able to point out when she got back a number of the chrysalises or chrysalis, whatever the plural is, uh, but uh, they're just so interesting, and it's amazing how they can go in a week's time from a little bitty half-inch-long caterpillar to, you know, a big, fat three-inch-long uh, caterpillar that's already ready to go into its next life uh, cycle stage. So, uh, yeah, interesting things, but not so good if they're eating up your good vegetables. No, that's right. I, I'm on both sides of that. I'm interested in them, and uh, <laughs> but I do want my vegetables. So. <laughs> well, Bob and... I may call you again for 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 the uh, whole weekends out when the rest of my questions come. But well, you, so you know, I'll be here to. I'll always enjoy talking to you, Faye. Have a great weekend. Well, many many thanks to you. You're Bye for now. certainly welcome. Mm-hmm. Bye for now to you. Bye. All right, it's going to be Rick and John and uh, Donald. Have me another name in just a second. Uh, good morning, Rick. 
Let's see. I think I hit. Uh, let's get this right there. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm well, sir. How about yourself? Oh, I can't complain. That's a good thing. Real quick. Is it okay to put uh, growing green down today? Absolutely. Great day to do it. Doesn't have to be watered in. Uh, will not burn. Uh, it doesn't really go to work until it gets watered. So if it's convenient right. to go back and moisten it, do so. But uh be an ideal thing to do. If I get home at a reasonable hour, I may be doing some of the same on my yard. Yeah. Next question. Um, is it too late to plant tomatoes? It's not too late, and it's in some ways it may be a little too early because I don't think you're going to have a lot of luck in finding plants quite yet. Another week to two weeks from now, there will be lots of plants out there. We are getting a little bit late to be planting them from seed because seed to make a nice transplant is four to six weeks. Four to six weeks from now, we'll be pushing uh, mid-August, and I think you can still plant cherry tomatoes that late, but if you're looking to plant big-fruited tomatoes, whether it's Celebrity or Black Crim or Purple Cherokee, whatever whatever your favorites, the big slicers are, um, I... It's yeah, it's a little let, uh, er, a little late to get seed started on those, but another week or 10 days, you're going to see transplants available in the nurseries, and uh, I would certainly recommend getting some more of them in the ground at that time. Well, if I find some celebrity plants, which I think I have, uh-huh. won't those be, if I find celebrity plants, I think I have, will it be okay to plant them and they will produce? Absolutely. Absolutely. Celebrity is a, you know, a large fruited tomato and large fruited tomatoes don't set a lot of fruit in the heat. But you plant your your plant your plants here the middle of June. By the time we get to late August, September, when the nights start cooling down, they will uh, produce profusely. This is, I think, late June, early July is the best time to get your fall tomato plants in. And Celebrity's one that I always plant. I mean, it's been around a long time, but it still is one of the best red slicers out there. Now, if I can find it, I'll also plant some Arkansas Traveler. Um, there, there are two or three other ones that I may plant, but Celebrity is always kind of the backbone of my summer garden and i plant one crop for uh-huh. spring and then i'll plant a second crop of them for small uh, for fall they are a semi-determinate which means that they produce a heavy crop and then they'll go on and and make a few more but uh yeah i um as soon as the plants are available i'll be planting some more celebrities if you're finding them now get them in the ground as soon as you can another question is this is the second year in a row that i've planted like three tomato plants in the same hole mm-hmm that's not really a good idea, is it? I usually I usually do two. I don't necessarily put them in the same hole, but I'll put them in the same cage because I use the big 18-inch diameter cages, and uh, I think it's fine to put two. Three is pushing it a little bit. I think on the I'm end of the... Tr- it wouldn't get sunlight. Well, you know... It it all depends on the variety. If you're planting an indeterminate, like um, you know, like most of your cherry tomatoes are, or like a lot of your old fashions, those things stretch out, and they're basically just a big vine, and they seem to still get plenty of sunlight. If you're planting a determinate variety, like a lot of these that uh, they sell as the so-called rodeo tomatoes, they have their new varieties every year. Yeah, I think you might have a problem with them shading each other out. But if you're planting the long Longer, leggier 
uh, indeterminates, I think you, I think you put two put two or three in a cage without any problem. Well, I thought I was planting <clears throat> a cherry tomato, but it turns out it was a San Marzano. <laughs> yeah, it's one of your Italian paste tomatoes, right? Yeah, it's not my favorite, but it sure has put out a lot of tomatoes. Well, you know, they are really made as a cooking tomato, as a stewing tomato, and they are outstanding. I mean, if you make spaghetti sauce or do homemade pizzas or anything like that, you will love your San Marzano. But as uh, a slicing tomato for a salad, I'm with you. It leaves a lot to be desired in in texture and not the same flavor I'm looking for. But uh, San Marzano is like an oversized Roma. And like I say, it's a great great, uh, paste tomato, but not the best as a slicer. What do you think about Happy Frog fertilizer? Uh, Happy Frog products, um, I I think their fertilizers are fine. I think most all of their fertilizers are 100% organic, and uh, they make some good products. I don't like the fact that they use Canadian peat moss in a lot of their soil mixes, and and they know that. They know how I feel about it. But overall, Happy Frog, which is a part of Fox Farms, um, they make a lot of good products out there. They're little bit more pricier than some of your basic uh, Medina Micro products, but a uh, good product. I, I like the company. I like the people that uh, own and uh, manage the company. What do you fertilize tomatoes with, you personally? I personally usually use Medina's Growing Green, um, or the other one that I'm that I'm really fond of is uh, Nature's Creation. Uh, they just call it Premium Lawn Food. Medina's is a poultry litter base. Uh, the, uh, nature's creation is an alfalfa base. And right now I'm, I'm trying to figure out which one does best. The alfalfa base smells better, but I, it's hard for me to get away from the Medina. It's done such good things for my yard over the years that, uh, um, it's, and I, and I also have good access to plenty of it because, uh, we buy it, uh, 24 pallets at a time, which is 24 tons of fertilizer. And, our guys, as careful as they are with the forklifts, I get the broken bags. So <laughs> everything goes into my garden, whether it's compost or fertilizer or anything else, is the ones that they ripped up too badly to put a piece of tape on. So uh, it's not that it's absolutely the best one out there. There are a lot of good fertilizers, including the Happy Frog and Fox Farm products. But uh, I noticed the Happy Frog. It's granular and mm-hmm. it doesn't dissolve real good yeah it it takes longer to break down i'd have to say that on the happy frog products i like them best if they are blended into the soil lightly uh, with the others medina and others i can leave them just on the surface which makes my life a little easier all right well i'm gonna hang up and listen to some other good calls well you get out and have a wonderful weekend and i sure appreciate the good questions uh thanks for calling this morning thank you bye-bye certainly goodbye all right, back to gardening. Nice Saturday morning out there. I tell you what, it's, it, it, my brain is confused having the 4th of July on a Thursday. <laughs> it's going to take a few days to really figure out, uh, you know, get back in a normal week schedule. But I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad you're here talking to me. I'm going to talk to John and David, and then I've got a couple of open lines. Grab one of them if you like, 210-599-5555. I say good morning, John. Good morning, sir. How are you doing today? I'm good. How about yourself? Oh, uh, could be better. I'm one of those uh, seven-day-a-week workers myself, so hey, <laughs> what, what it, it is what it is. Well, I hope you enjoy what you do. That's the bottom line. There you go. Um, 
I, I'm uh, actually a neighbor of your partner about four miles, five miles from her house. Okay. And I'm having a hard time finding a, let's put it, the best word is reasonable contractor to build a greenhouse. I've tried those put-together kits. Yeah. They don't last. Yeah. They don't last. Have you, have you, have you called Tommy Muth, greenhouses, et cetera? Uh, yes. Um, he's a little on the high end. I mean, they're really good products, yeah. but they're a little on the high end for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I wish I could tell you somebody that really specializes in greenhouses, and there are just not very many people out there that do it. Um, if you're looking for somebody to build you a nice frame, uh, call Russell Tisdale over in Bernie, Tisdale Construction. Okay. And ask him if they do anything like that. And um, I will recommend to you, um, you know, I'm I'm in spending whatever it takes to really do the job right the first time. Um, I just, as you've probably heard me say way too many times, uh, I just got through building a greenhouse this past year. And I use this uh, product called Eco Vantage Wood. It is, right. uh, you know, and it is a it is a heat treated wood. It's not chemically treated, but it is the best wood I've ever found. But I'll tell you, it's pricey. It costs about the same as Trex. But um, um, are you planning to use your greenhouse as a year round structure? Is it going to be like for winter storage or starting well, it, seeds or well, all the above? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not going to say all of the above. I'd say in the summertime it's going to be empty. Yeah. But- Right, springtime propagation and those few plants that I do have outside that need to go in instead of my garage. Yeah. Um, and I've already got a 10 by 10 slab. It's just getting somebody to build a. <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to build a $2 million house and not a $2,000 greenhouse. Call Russell, go. call Russell and see if he can help you on that. It's, you know, that's probably a one day project for those guys. And I just right. really enjoyed working with him. Um, you know, you can simplify it pretty much if on just a, uh, you know, 10 by 10, 10 by 12 structure, something like that. If you're not out to win an architectural award, I would not even worry about trying to make it greenhouse based. I'd shape rather. I'd do a, I'd do a slatted roof. I'd probably do uh, 10 foot eaves on one side, uh, eight foot on the other, do a slanted roof and um, uh, any reasonably good carpenter could put that together for you without any problem. Um, and if, if uh, again, if I were doing it and if I were really going to be budget conscious, I would, on the top, I would use a, you know, a good uh, semi-permanent, uh, some of this kind of honeycomb-looking material. They call it bywall. Uh, it's a bywall polycarbonate. It's very right, energy right. efficient. It's right. rigid. It's you use uh, just uh, aluminum or, uh, yeah, usually aluminum H-channel in between. You can buy that from greenhouses, et cetera, or if you want to step down one grade, uh, there's a company over on Ritterman Road, just a little ways inside 410, that is called Regal, R-E-G-A-L, Regal Plastics. And they have a bywall material called Polygal, P-O-L-Y-G-A-L. And um, that's what I'd be putting on the roof. And I would think about, you know, using, uh, you know, a soft poly on the edges or on the outside. Uh, put yourself a good uh, permanent door in there. 
But uh, I'd have a permanent roof, and then I just uh, put on, you know, put on my poly, which is going to cost next to nothing for the winter months, and then pull it off in the summer months. It's uh, this is what we do with one of the greenhouses uh, that we have at our nursery, and you know, it's an hour's work to put it on in the fall, and you know, it's uh, uh, it it costs next to nothing. So I hope these are just some little helps, uh, hints that will help you. A greenhouse that size, you're going to want to ventilate it, but I don't think since you're not going to use it year-round, it's not worth trying to put in a fan and a wet wall and things like that. You basically, um, and and I will tell you one more thing, you'll have to buy it online, um, but if you're looking for the very best shade covering, and I would probably do the top and have it hang down over the about half of the west wall, depending on how your slab's oriented. Uh, right. I'm I'm really impressed with a shade cloth that I use called Aluminet, A-L-U-M-I-N-E-T. And right. uh, its claim to fame is that uh, it keeps a greenhouse as well as providing the shade it keeps a greenhouse. They say 10 degrees cooler, and I have to right. say it, it has done that for me. So that's the shade cloth I'm going to recommend you. If you want standard shade cloth, uh, again, the greenhouses, et cetera, is the way to go. Understood, sir. Well, good right, luck with your down. project, and uh, I love greenhouses. <laughs> All I can tell you is that's not nearly big enough, but you'll find that out, And uh, but that, that'll that be a real good starting point, and uh, you holler back if you have any more questions. I look forward to helping well, you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome, John. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. All right. Next up is David. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm sitting here looking out the window, getting ready to pick all the world. <laughs> Good luck on that. We could use some help out there. There you go. Listen, I uh, I'm on a, a bird of paradise white. Okay, yeah. Uh, supposed to get. Um, are you growing it as a house plant? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I got it in a pot right now. Yeah, it, well, and it has to stay in a pot. It's, it's not cold hardy. It's uh, it's going to get big. That's going to be the white bird of paradise, uh, Strelitzia coli, I think it is. Uh, it's going to want to get 10, 12 feet tall, so it may outgrow you eventually. But inside your home, it should be in a sunny window. If you move it outside, little morning sun is fine, but no hot afternoon sun. No, okay. All right, well, then. It's the right way I have it then. Yeah, it's it's a really good plant. It's a really pretty plant. Very unusual flower when it decides to flower, but uh, it's going to get it's going to get big on you. That's the only thing. The Stradicia Regina, the what they call the tropical bird of paradise, with his orange and blue and oh, you know, it's oh, yeah. a gorgeous flower and a much more compact yeah. plant. But yeah. I think the white bird is probably a better house plant. It just gets big. Okay, no problem. I'll just put it in a bigger pot. There you go. You know, no problem. <clears throat> Another question: Can I uh, plant a rose bush now around you know this time? Yeah, yeah, you can prune them. You're going to set back, uh, no, you know, man. a little bit of your uh, flowering, but no, you no. can you can prune roses this time of year. Don't prune them real heavily. Uh, prune them back by maybe a third, but uh, you can do that today, yeah. and it'll be just fine. Yeah. How about if I plant one? Can I plant one one this time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. You're you're All just right. taking it out of the pot and putting it in the ground. You'll need to water yeah. regularly to help it get established, mm-hmm. oh, but yeah. this is a great yeah. time for planting roses. I water my roses every other day. Yes, sir. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want them to die. <laughs> there <laughs> you time. go. Too much work for them to die. 
No, it's too much work and too much money. But no, you can go ahead and plant some more anytime you feel like digging a hole. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. All right, Bob. Well, thank you. You're sure welcome. Have a nice day. You too, Stay David. Cool. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Back to gardening. It's going to be Barbara and Sid and Carlos and that other line's rigging now. Uh, good morning, Barbara. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my question is about roses, and I think you may have just answered it. I have six rose bushes. Three of them are Don Juan climbers. Uh-huh. And I would... I had heard that February was the time of the year to cut them back. That's wrong. That's wrong on Don Juan climbers, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Go ahead. Okay, well, the other three, one is a Julia child, and one is an antique uh, rose bush that I bought at the antique. uh, Rose Emporium? Emporium. Uh Uh-huh. And then the other is, uh, I don't know what. (laughs) But the so the the time of the year to cut them was one topic and the other one is how much and i believe mm-hmm. you just said cut them back a third well let's uh let's back up a little bit and cuz you've asked a really really good question but there are two broad categories of roses uh they're climbing roses and then they're bush roses and their blooming is totally different a climbing rose like your Don Juan climber sets the majority of its flower buds in the fall. And if you prune those things in February, you're cheating yourself out of 80% of your year's flowers. So climbers, we let them do their spring blooming and then prune them back. This is probably an ideal time to prune your climbers back. Now, Don Juan is one of those that uh, blooms mostly in the spring, but then scatters a flower, a few flowers through the summer. But uh, on climbers, those should never be pruned in February. Let them do their pr- their blooming and then prune after that. And on climbers, you just kind of prune them as much as you feel like they need it. You really don't have to prune climbers at all, except maybe to take some of the dead wood out and just change the shape. They can tend to get kind of out of hand because they can be very vigorous growers. Now, your Julia Child, your antique uh, from the Rose Emporium, these are much more likely bush roses. Uh, Julia Child is certainly a bush rose, and bush roses they make their buds in the spring, not in the fall. So bush roses, we do prune in February, uh, and then they bloom on the new growth that comes out after that. So uh, you can certainly prune them now. Our bush roses, we usually prune a second time in late summer, sometime around Labor Day or so. But um, if you want to prune them now, you certainly can. But the the big difference in what you were thinking is your, your Don Juan should not be pruned until May or June after they've done most of their spring flowering or, or you're just losing a lot of the flowers. Your bush roses, you can pretty much prune them anytime you like. Don Juan's in May or June. I'm making yeah. notes here. Well, all th- just figure this way. Climbers in May or June um bush roses in february and again in september and if you want to trim a little bit in between times that's fine okay i have one that just keeps on blooming one of the non-rot ones just doesn't know it's not supposed yeah and that's probably that may be one of the knockouts or you know home run or one of that series uh those are wonderful plants because they bloom so much but in my experience they also take more water um, I grow a lot of roses that only get watered once every month or six weeks, and they do just fine. But boy, those uh, those knockouts—they want it every few days, or they will they will really go downhill. So sounds like you know what you're doing, <laughs> and having fun at it too. Okay. 
Okay, well, thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. You get out and have a wonderful weekend, and uh, I'll move down to line four and say good morning, Sid. Bye-bye. Well, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Well, your internet flickered a little bit, but it uh, it didn't come through. Well, Don's been in there on the phone to the engineer, so uh, we'll we'll tell him to keep working at it. That's that's way above my pay grade. Okay. Well, I, I thought it might help to know that it did. Uh, we always appreciate it. Do appreciate that, Sid. Uh, my question is about tomatoes. Uh, I hadn't really noticed this before but uh every time i go out in the garden i start itching Uh uh-huh and i'm thinking that it's whenever i pick the tomatoes that i start itching all over is that uh something just sort of unique to me or is that something that uh happens well it's something that happens it's not unique to you but it doesn't happen to everybody um, some people are a lot more sensitive than others to, uh, some of the stuff that tomatoes produce. Some people are, you know, are very allergic, uh, to tomatoes to eat them. Uh, anybody that, uh, has problems with gout, I mean, tomatoes will just eating will just, you know, drive you crazy, but, uh, they do have some stuff in their foliage that will make people with sensitive skin, uh, have something of a reaction to it. So, uh, yeah, you're not alone, but uh, what I do, and um, I do it more to keep my dermatologist happy than anybody else. I went to Academy and bought some of these real lightweight uh, sun shirts, so to speak, That uh, uh, and, and I wear those when I'm pruning, when I'm doing a lot of things outside, and uh, it sure does help as, with some of, those, uh, some of those things that will cause that skin reaction. Well, I normally try to use long sleeves out there, too. Yeah. But uh, sometimes you just don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know that very well. And for me, it's a long walk back up to the house to pick up that shirt that I forgot to put on when I should have at 9 o'clock in the morning. But, uh, no, it's there is definitely material in the leaves of tomatoes that some people are allergic to. Now, another thing is it seems like the tomatoes have really slowed down the last week. And um, I'm wondering, is it because I just need to fertilize, or is it just because of the heat? It's at least in part because of the heat, and it's also because of tomato varieties. Now, if you're growing any cherry tomatoes, I mean, I just can't eat all my sun golds. I picked a huge sack of sun golds to share, and sweet 100s as well. So your cherries ought to be growing really strong. They should pretty much continue that all summer. But your bigger slicing tomatoes, yeah, this is a the time they're going to start slowing down. It's one of the reasons that we do tend to plant a few more just as soon as they're on the market, which may be a couple of weeks. Now, the other day, my wife was out there picking tomatoes, and uh, she stepped in some uh, fire ants right there on the edge of the raised bed. Right. And, I mean, she got so upset with that, she... She poured about a half a bottle of of uh, uh, Dawn liquid on it, and it's gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, and that's that's a little overkill. I'm not sure if she really killed them or if she ran them off, but I understand that urge to fight back and 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 destroy large numbers of fires. I did the same thing. Uh, 
Uh, only I use the uh, Mound Wrench from Nature's Creation, which is a rosemary oil base. But um, I think orange oil and some of the herbal oils kill them faster. But Dawn's a pretty good insect killer all on its own. And uh, um, if they start to come back, then I'd, like I say, I'd, I'd switch over to one of the other herbal oils. But uh, they're sure prolific out there this year. It's one more reason I think it's a good idea to be spraying beneficial nematodes all around because it doesn't kill them instantly, but it will take care of them. Other thing I would tell you in your vegetable garden is a couple of times a year, if you get a bag of dry molasses and just kind of sprinkle it all over the place, it does wonderful things for the soil, is good for the plants, and fire ants can't stand it. They'll move out. Um, I know my business partner fought them and her uh, she grows mainly big flower garden in front of her home, and she tried two or three years trying to eliminate all the fire ants. And then after talking to Howard Garrett, got a bag of dry molasses, spread it around out there, and I think it was two or three years before she started seeing any fire ants again. So pretty inexpensive and one of the best ways to run them off while you build your soil at the same time. Now, how thick would you spread it? It's just kind of like your salt and peppering. I don't do it exactly. I just grab it by the handful and just, you know, sprinkle it around where I can see it on the ground, but where I'm not really making a layer. Or like you do the Epsom salts. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the uh, molasses isn't going to dissolve and go away the way the Epsom salts do. But, yeah, I'd say about the same about the same rate, yes, sir. Okay. Well, very good. I sure thank you, and uh, I appreciate you being on the Internet, but uh, the old radio worked again. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're not too far away, and uh, FCC lets, uh, lets them do what they call their pattern change. Oh, Don, Don, my engineer's telling me we're up and running now, so try it again. Right. I'll try it again. Sid, I appreciate it, and you have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Bye. All right, it's going to be Carlos and Matt and Terry. Good morning, Carlos. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Happy 4th of July weekend. And to you as well. Thank you. Uh, I keep a camper over at Lake Medina. Okay. uh, And and it's surrounded by live oaks. Uh Uh-huh. Near the gutters where some of their conditioning water stays. Mm Mm-hmm. And in the cover for the refrigerator where you have the water drain. Right. Uh, I have all these little pesty little black ants that they love to go for the water. They are like sugar ants. Uh, right. Anything I can do? If you want to put, um, and, and unfortunately, you know, it has to be repeated when we get more rains. But you can put just a couple of drops of orange oil in there. I get a bottle of Medina's orange oil, and that will also take care of any mosquito larvae that show up. Um, but it is, it's a real good killer on sugar ants and fire ants and all kinds of ants. So uh, as I understand it, this is places where the water kind of stands and the ants want to come to it. Yes, up I, on the roof. Yeah. And I, uh, along the side. Of- yeah. I... You know, I don't know of a real bait that you could use, but if this is a place that you can get to without risking your neck, you know, getting too high up on a ladder or anything, I'd just put, you know, just a, like a quarter of a teaspoon or less, just a few drops of uh, orange oil in there, and that'll keep the water fresh. That'll eliminate the ants. That'll eliminate the mosquitoes. And, uh, 
um, do nothing but good things, and it's totally safe for people and pets too. Right. Well, will that damage uh, the paint on the camper? No. You're going to be using yeah. it so dilutely. Orange oil is one of the best cleaners in the world. I use it as a, a countertop cleaner. I use it, you know, <laughs> I use it on my floors. You can't use it too strong on floors or you will strip the wax off, but not going to hurt your paint at all. Oh, okay. Very good. I will give it a try. Let me know how it works for you. Yeah. Uh, question number two. Uh, in the same area, since this year the fleas are just, yeah. Overachievers. Right. Uh, kind of using nematodes is almost impossible at the RV park. Sure. Because of large area. Right. Any Anything else that may work with fleas? You know, there are all kinds of sprays, but um, most of them are pretty toxic and yeah. may or may not work. Um, I would, um, I, I still think beneficial nematodes are the best. And in the area right around your second home up there, um, you're just going to use a hose in sprayer and put them out with that. And pretty easy. I don't, you know, if, if the owner of the, of the entire area wants to buy them a bigger quantity and put them out, they certainly can, but I'm sure you're mainly concerned with the area just right around where you are and, I've every time I've used them, it's been a couple of years before I had to use them again. So um, still going to be the best suggestion I have that that along with whatever your veterinarian recommends that you use on your pets. But yeah, fleas are really bad this year. Yeah, and for inside the the home, uh, I know you have mentioned vacuuming. Yeah, I vacuum heavily, and again, dilute orange oil is a good cleaner and kills the fleas that it comes in contact with. One last question. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law moved to Albany, New York. Okay. And apparently uh, the whole area has a lot of ticks. Mm -hmm. I mean, you step out of the house and the ticks yeah. just jump on you. Oh, yeah. Uh, anything to use for ticks? Well, in the fall months, you know, it won't do much good because they kind of go into a deep freeze midwinter. But the ticks come down out of the bushes and into the soil. And actually in the fall, beneficial nematodes will do a very good job, you know, of killing off the ticks. But uh, only when they're down off the bushes and into the soil. On the bushes and themselves... Um, any of the sprays that are based on rosemary, on lavender, on thyme, thyme oil seems to be especially effective in killing ticks. Um, they're, uh, they can ask up there, but I'm sure they will find just, they, they want to ask for an herbal oil based product and that will be safe to spray on the plants, but it'll sure kill the ticks. Very good. Well, we'll give it a try and uh, and report again. back. Yeah, thanks again <laughs> for all your help for many, many years. Well, it's my... you you have a great weekend. You do the same, Carlos. Sure, Thank appreciate you, you listening. Uh -huh. <laughs> Bye -bye. Goodbye. All right. Uh, next up is Matt. Good morning, Matt. Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about you this morning? Doing great. Good. Hey, I've got a some property up in northeast Dewitt County. 
uh, you've gone over this a million times. I just can't find the right steel <laughs> pad I wrote it on. Well, let's write it down again. What are we talking about? Yes. Yes, I've got a probably one inch to about two inch diameter WeSats I'm trying to get rid of. Yeah. Uh, and I can't remember exactly the spray, uh, what you recommended. Well, what I, what I do is cut it off at ground level, and then I'll actually drench that stump. And it's not organic, it's, uh, but it sure does work. I just use diesel. You know, okay. and then what uh, the thing I do, I will either mix, and I've, you know, I've always recommended mixing it like half and half with molasses because the molasses cleans up the residue. But since it doesn't mix well, I'm talking to a lot of people now that say I'd rather just have two containers, put the diesel on to kill, and then follow it up, uh, pouring a little bit of molasses. Or you could use dry molasses, just a little bit more expensive, but then put a little bit of uh, molasses around the area to encourage the microbes that break down the diesel residue. But for mesquite and for Weesatch, I've uh, it's a lot safer for the land and for you than it is use remedy and some of these really toxic brush killers which tend to move a long way and start killing your oak trees and everything else uh, i just direct apply you know a little we it's two three inches in diameter probably uh, a couple of cups are going to be enough to kill it but I, I cut it down first and just pour it over the stump okay and what about some uh uh like your trumpet vine, your rose hedges on fence lines, and your underbrushes under trees. Is that just as easy as to, you know, shred that down, weed eat it down? Yeah, I shred it down. Thing? Now, out on the fence line, you could use the same thing, but you sure don't want to use it under your trees. And I'm just going to shred it down. Um, it's some, uh, unfortunately, it, it well, it's, it's my exercise program. I'll put it that way. I don't have to be involved in any health clubs, but uh, I wish they were like cedar, and when you cut them off once, they died. But unfortunately, that uh, usually, you know, things like your trumpet vine are probably going to come back. So just uh, uh, just keep after it. Eventually, you will get it under control. Now, any tender stuff, you can make your vinegar and orange oil mix and burn that off. But anything that's woody, yeah, it's just going to be a bit of an ongoing battle. All right. Well, I guess I'll just cancel my gym membership. <laughs> get out in the sunshine like uh, like God intended us to. Matt, it's good that's to talk it. to you. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's just get started. Uh, Terry's up first. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm well. How are you today? I am doing better than I deserve, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you and Dave Ramsey. I think you probably yeah. deserve to be doing pretty well, so uh, um, I'm glad. <laughs> Thank you. I have a very quick question, actually, too. Um, a friend of mine gifted me some elephant ear bulbs, okay. and I planted um, two of them in my front planting bed, and they are going wild. They are amazing. I took the others, and I put them in pots in my backyard, and there's nothing going on with them. I'm wondering, should I take them out of the pot and put them in the ground? Um, tell me the difference in the sun in the two areas. One area you get more sun than the other? Um, well, my front planting bed, um, does get a lot of sun, um, in the morning and throughout the day, but I have them in such an area where I feel along the fence line mm -hmm. where there is sufficient, um, uh, sunlight, um, but, 
I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. Well, they, um, you know, they do take a lot of water. Let me ask you one thing. Now, are these bulbs, are they kind of elongated or are they more perfectly round like a tennis ball? They look just like a tennis ball. Okay. Um, I know this sounds silly, but I have to ask it anyway. Are you sure you got them right side up? <laughs> well, you know what? That's a great question. <laughs> Because I see this all the time, and I my line, because sometimes it's hard to tell, and I always tell people, if you're unsure, plant them on their side, and they will come up anyway. I would either dig them up and see if anything is going on, um, uh, and, and as silly as it sounds to say, that is a real possibility that I see happen fairly often. Now, your friend gave you, in my opinion, there are two types of elephant ears. They're the old-fashioned kind, and then they're what they call the upright. Old ones are called colocasias. The newer varieties are called alocasias. Alocasias have some interesting color patterns, and, and they're pretty things. But the ones that you have, in my opinion, are by far the better plants. But there's no logical reason so long as you're watching your watering because they should grow in pots just as well as they grow in the flower beds. So uh, how, how many bulbs are we talking here? Well, I, I, am, I put one um, in one pot and one in the other pot. So there's fine. only two of them. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. I, and how long ago did you plant them? Like three weeks ago. I'd, um, yeah, I'd... At the very least, I would wash the soil away from the bulb and see what's happening. Because three weeks of heat, they ought to be doing something. It, I just, <laughs> it sounds so silly, but I talk to people all the time. that and, and when you plant them upside down, they will eventually come up. But it can take six to ten weeks for them to do that. So uh, okay. since I'm sure it's nice, loose soil and all, just. You just dig them up and find out what's going on, and uh, um, let me know what you discover. I'll put it that way. Oh, well, <laughs> that's funny. Um, I will definitely do that. I never thought about that, actually. Um, <laughs> my second question is, is, you know, in my back patio, of course, I have various um, plantings from geraniums to, um, you know, I've got some centronella, uh -huh. um, all kinds of things wrapped around my patio. And the mosquitoes are just horrible. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is there anything natural or organic that you would suggest um, that, you know, it'd be nice to be able to sit out there? Well, garlic is one of the best things you can use. Uh, and I don't mean garlic plants. That's You know, you read all these articles. Oh, yeah, I'll put that citronella, of course, is a form of geranium and lemongrass. And there are all these things mm -hmm. that are natural repellents. But you'd have to you know, live in a forest of them for them to really work. Um, garlic is a pretty good repeller, and there are a couple of different forms you can get it in. You can get a liquid garlic spray and mm -hmm. simply spray around the area, and it will keep them away from some time, for some time. There is a form or there's a product which is called Dr. T's. T is in Tom. Dr. T's, I'm pretty sure it's zeolite. It looks like kitty litter. But they have taken mm -hmm. this uh, rock substrate 
and impregnated it with a lot of garlic. It's what we use in our seminar area. If it's a dry area, you can sprinkle it around. We find it keeps the mosquitoes away for up to a month. If it's out in a more exposed area, you may have to reapply it a little more often. I don't think it's practical to try to do your entire yard, but as a uh, as a something to sprinkle around a seating area, I find that the Dr. T's works very well. Um, there are also, you know, if you want to add a little ambiance, there are some uh, 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 incense products. There is a citronella-based candle by a company called mm-hmm. Murphy's, uh, good old Irish name, Murphy's Naturals. And uh, I know when I was up in Colorado for a couple of days, uh, uh, the mosquitoes up there are just horrible. But uh, we lit a couple of the Murphy's Natural Candles out on the porch and didn't have any uh, mosquito issues at all. But if you want something you can sprinkle around and not have to do it every time you go out, look for some Dr. T's and give it a try. Excellent. And is that safe? Because I do have a puppy. Totally, Um, totally safe for people and pets and everything else. And uh, when you put it out, you know, the first hour, it's going to smell a little garlicky which will make you hungry if you're like me. But after that, the uh, the aroma, our perception of the aroma goes away. The mosquitoes apparently can still detect it for quite some time. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Um, I will try both of your suggestions for my elephant ears and mosquitoes. And let me know what you find. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. Thank <you>. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, Goodbye. Well, Joanna dropped off and came back, but I'm not going to move her to the back of the line because I know she's there. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning. Good morning. I don't know what it is. It's cutting in and out my phone. Well, they're bad about doing that. These new phones, they're great as computers and cameras and everything else, but they're pretty cruddy for making phone calls. So it sounds like we have a pretty good connection. How can I help you? Yeah. Yes, I, I think I have crop worms. I, I'm not quite sure. A large uh, brown area, and I can pull the grass up. And it comes so up just, runners and all? Yes. It yes, probably it, is grub worms. Just, yeah. And I just wonder, what uh, do I need to put the nematodes out, or or do you have any any well the best best way to get rid of the nematodes is the uh or the best way to get rid of the grub worms is the nematodes now the grubs have probably cut the roots in a bigger area than you see so regardless of what you do it's probably going to look worse before it gets better but i would put out the nematodes to control the grubs and then i put out a little bit of uh fertilizer and a little bit of uh, finished compost in the area where you're seeing all the damage to help your grass grow back more quickly. But uh, the best way to control the grubs would definitely be your beneficial nematodes. Oh, okay. And should I, you know, get all that uh, dead grass? No, No, don't worry about it. Mow it off. um, and yeah, it's your, your grass is going to grow back into that area. It's it's not worth it. I think you do more damage than good trying to get in there and pull it out or rake it out. Just uh, like I say, a little fertilizer, a little compost to encourage the surrounding grass to move back into those areas. Oh, great, great. That's good news. Okay, so I go I'll go and get the nematodes. Now that I probably won't get anything till later on. You just do whenever it's convenient for you, but remember, their grubs are probably still out there feeding, so do it as soon as it's convenient for you. All right. I should thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> thank you for the call this morning. You're welcome. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. 
All right, let's get right straight back to the phone lines. It's going to be Gene and Frank and Marcia and Carolyn, and Gene's up first. Good morning, Gene. Good morning, Bob. I want to, first of all, thank you for many years of your upbeat help. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. And I want to ask everyone to please think prayerfully for California. Amen. Earthquakes. And I want to say, when that person called about the fleas, um, I know what they mean. I live in a rocky territory. Right. And I did try the, I did try the, um, Oh, shoot, now I forget that name. You know, the, the bugs. Yeah, um, the beneficial nematodes. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Um, I tried that. I tried diatomaceous earth. I put essential oil on two poodles, and they died from it. Um, I had fleas jumping in, in homes. So thankfully, I just moved out. Okay. I mean, I'm telling you, I am a experienced and I, I'm a warrior with fleas. Okay. So there were fleas about three years ago. My poodle that had seizures because of the rub on medication, yep. that none of the other dogs were affected, just this one dog. And I said, no, she's 15 years old. I'm not putting her through any more rub on stuff. And she, her, her seizure stopped. When I discovered coconut oil, it, the, the kind that solidified when it's mm-hmm. uh, cool, okay, and I put it all over her. I did shave her, too, and all of a sudden, she had no more seizures, and this little dog was so, so happy. Okay, so rub, coconut oil gets rid of fleas, and if you'll shave them, it you don't waste as much, and you can see then, you can monitor the fleas. Then the second thing is straight bleach in a pump sprayer mm-hmm. outdoors. Spray outdoors, straight bleach. In a rocky area, you can do that. Bleach will be hard on your plant, so you have to be careful oh. using that. Oh. But I'm sure glad oh, to yeah. know about the coconut oil. So you let it come to room temperature. You let it liquefy, and then just kind of rub it in, whether whether you've shaved them or not. I know you have to be a little careful in shaving because they can get sunburned this time of year. But uh, yeah. um, but but so you just let it come to room temperature, liquefy, and then you just rub it into the fur. Well, actually, I don't. I don't. I think somehow that thickness smothers them faster. I that's just a theory. I don't know if it's true, but I I, I just put a big handful in when it's and then I kind of it is it's starts to melt on their skin, uh-huh. but I, I don't let it liquefy first. You know, I mean, you could try it, but I, I just feel a theory that it may actually kill the fleas quicker if it's, and, and they're not, you can see them dead in oh, yeah. the, the fleas. And the dogs don't so, mind it. I'm sure they may want to lick it off, but it's good for uh, them as well. So, Oh, oh absolutely. My dogs kind of like to lick it off, and, and, and really, I, I use... Uh, there's probably lots. I get a product from HEB called Carrington Farms, uh-huh. and we dipped some chips in it, and it is the best dip <laughs> in the world. <laughs> oh, you can cook in it. It has. Uh, you have to be careful not to burn it. But no, I'm a big fan. I actually uh, have taken it before. It's it's a very good product, and I have to tell you, I get mine actually. There's a uh, a dog and cat shop called Fifi and Fido's down on Broadway, and that's where I get the coconut oil. But it is, uh, I just have never tried it for fleas, but we have an outbreak of fleas like everybody else. So um, I I think I'll give it a, a little bit of try on my kitty cat this evening. I don't think it could possibly hurt anything. And if it kills the fleas, boy, that's the best of all worlds. Oh, yes. And I put it on my cat my two cats outdoors and 
course, they look weird, and they don't like looking weird. I, I don't. I don't shave them. <laughs> no, no, you don't shave a cat like you can a poodle. But uh, no. I really appreciate the information. And uh, yeah, fleas are bad, and we're always looking for a good non-toxic way to go after them. So, uh, may, um, may I share my indoor room spray? Of course. If you don't do it multi uh, across, you know, dogs, the outdoors, and the indoors. You really have missed a point, and. Um, I, I found a natural, um, well, okay, all it is is uh, I, I do a room pump, one of those pump sprayers, too, uh-huh. because I got a fairly decent-sized house, and I fill it full of um, vinegar, white vinegar, cheap mm-hmm. white vinegar, and then I add a, about, I think it's a, a cup or almost a cup of Dawn, uh-huh. and I mean, I mean, this is at least a gallon, I think. But and and I'm maybe putting too much dawn in, okay, blue, well, blue dawn, and then I add and then I add about a half a cup of uh, olive oil, the classic, the classic taste, and uh-huh. I, I shake it real good, and because I was having fleas in my house, right? So now, now I don't have fleas. And well, that's good to know. Uh, dawn is, it, yeah, dawn dishwashing liquid is well known, and if you. If you Google fleas and things on the internet, you'll find that that's one of the most recommended products. But so you're just using a mixture of water and Dawn and olive oil. No, it's it's white vinegar. Oh, just white vinegar. White vinegar. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah, no water. In the big gallon sizes, and then I think it's about a gallon. I think those spray pump sprayers that you can buy from Home Depot. Um, they're don't are they about a gallon or a gallon and a half? Oh, they're they're gallon, gallon and a half. They're much better places to get them than Home Depot. But they're uh, there's a line out there called Centurion that I like really well. But well, listen, that's uh, I appreciate you sharing both remedies for on the pets and in the home, and uh, I appreciate it very much. I'll be giving it a try. Thank you so much. Well, you've shared a lot with me, too, so it's just about time I shared that. (laughs) Well, thank you for feeling that way, Gene. And you have a wonderful weekend. We'll definitely talk again. And next up is, uh, let me hit the right button here. Next up is Frank. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I'm good. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm good. The reason I'm calling is um, I'm building some equipment sheds to store my equipment in. Yes, sir. And I was wanting to put uh, some of this material that you have talked about in the past uh, that you all use in your parking lot, and I can't remember what it is. It's decayed granite. Uh, Decayed granite. Yeah, they also call it decomposed granite, uh, but decayed granite is what I've always asked for it by that name. Comes out of Fredericksburg. Are you looking for it by the semi-load, or are you looking for it? Yes, uh-huh. Okay. Um, it comes out when we used it on our parking lot. Uh, we just had a, uh, you know, a fellow who, well, he delivered us 135 semis of base and then about 10 semis of the decayed granite. If you're looking for it in smaller quantities, uh, I use stone and soil depot, but, uh, if you have a relationship with a trucking company and you're, you know, buying 15, 20 yards at a time, uh, comes out of the Fredericksburg area and it's, uh, just very good material. name of the at Fredericksburg area or I I don't but any okay. trucker would know um, okay. 
uh, like I say, if uh, if you're looking for that quantity, if you're just looking for 10 or 12 yards, get it from Stone and Soil Depot. It'll be cheaper that way. But if you're looking for, you know, like semi-loads of it, like say we use like 10 semis of it, um, probably any good trucking company, if you have a relationship with one, if not, ask around, uh, you know, um, we, I was trying to remember the name of the guy we used, real nice young man, uh, carry, carry somebody, but, um, Anyway, that that's what you want is just decayed granite. Okay. Well, let's see, I'm I'm located down here in um, the western part of Dewitt County. Oh, okay. So yeah, I was trying to get yeah. somewhere. Yeah, there like may that. be there. I doubt that there's anybody closer because you know you just have to go to where the natural deposits over it occur. But uh, mm-hmm. um, anybody who hauls base material and things like that. Um, you know, not that much further, and uh, that'll be that'll be a lot easier for you than going through two or three different people where it gets loaded and unloaded, loaded and unloaded. Uh, if I needed a big quantity of it, yeah, I'd I'd find a trucking firm and just get them. You're basically just pay them to haul it plus cost of the material. Sure, right. Okay, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Hey, Bob. my pleasure. Good luck on your project. And uh, um, what what are you going to be uh, using it for exactly? What is your application? Well, I'm just uh, having some uh, storage sheds built, like uh, 40 by 100. Okay. And it's just going to be, you know, my base soil uh, is going to be built up a little bit Mm -hmm. on a level situation in the building. And then I just want to put that in there to keep it from... Uh, being so dusty, you know, sure, as sure. it gets dried out oh, yeah. uh, under the shed. It'll it'll be a great material to use. I was going to tell you where we drive on it and where we have very heavy vehicles on it. We use compacted base underneath and then put the decayed granite on top. Oh, okay. For your purpose, um, I, I mean, for your driveways and things, I'll probably put down some base and then uh, top it. Yeah. With the granite where you're using other areas, uh, I just use it a couple of inches thick. Do not Put weed block, do not put plastic, do not put anything underneath it, or it will not okay. set up hard. But uh, okay. otherwise, just put it down. It'll be one of the nicest surfaces you've ever worked on. You will have some weeds sprout up in it, but, yeah. you know, sure. that's that's easily controlled. That's right. Sure. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate your information. My pleasure, Frank. Good luck on your day. You too. Good luck on your project. All right, back to gardening, back to the phone lines. Marcia, Carolyn, and Lloyd, one line open. Grab it quickly if you like, and I say uh, good morning, Marcia. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, thank you for all the gardening teaching that you've done for me <laughs> over the years. It is my pleasure, my pleasure. <laughs> we have recently moved to town as a part of a downsize, and we're doing a new garden, and we're doing well uh, of course, the weather helped out a lot, and we've had a bumper crop of black cherry tomatoes. Oh, good. And and the plants are still looking really good. I have, after the last few rains, I have lots and lots of blossoms, but I'm curious as to if those will set. They certainly should. Black cherry is uh, a good indeterminate, and being a cherry type, it is not severely affected by the nighttime temperatures like your larger varieties will be i don't think it'll be quite as prolific as sun gold but uh you should continue to get good black cherries all summer long and is there anything that i need to do to help them really continue through the fall fertilize them 
I'd use a good liquid, whether it's uh, has to grow or Fox Farms or Espoma. Uh, any of the good liquid fertilizers will keep them in good production. Well, we sure are enjoying having lots of black cherry tomatoes, <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> They're a tasty one. They've got that little bit of extra anthocyanin in them to give them that dark color. And I think it improves the flavor. I don't find them to be quite as sweet tasting as the yellow tomatoes, but uh, they are, you know, they're always a part of my garden, and I love the black cherry. It's just, it's got a good flavor. It's a very good producer. You know, what more do you look for in a tomato? But but do keep feeding. Feed every couple of weeks with a good uh, liquid fertilizer, and uh, those plants are going to just turn into enormous vines. They're going to spread out all over the place, and you'll still go on picking good fruit from them. Well, it already looks like a jungle, so I look forward to bigger and better. <laughs> I tell you, that's, uh, uh, I think everybody's garden this year, but, uh, I don't mind my black eyes and everything has simply gotten bigger and more robust. And whereas I've planted on my usual spacing this year, I'm having trouble getting down between the rows. Things have just responded so much to that rain, but that's a problem I'll take any time. I'm just always watching my feet to be sure there's not an unpleasant snake out there, but, uh, you know, I know we'll be back to dry droughty weather soon. So, uh, just like you, I'm just celebrating and enjoying every minute of it. Well, as a farmer's daughter, I grew up where you never talk bad about the rain. <laughs> I love what my business partner's <laughs> husband says about their place. He, he always says, where a good rain and a new calf are always welcome. <laughs> you betcha. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you, and have a great weekend. Uh, next up is Carolyn. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I've got a, yes, I've got a couple of questions. Okay. I think I found out what's I've got these little white moths. They look like paper moths, and they're everywhere. So I I uh, checked on the Internet, and they said they were probably side webworms, and I've got neighbors who have them. How, and, big are the, uh, how big are the moths? Oh, very small. Like the size yeah. of a dime? Yes, probably that size. Yeah. Actually, the sod webworm, sod webworm is more, that moth is more the size of a quarter, but there are so many different, uh, you know, well, different kinds of moths and things yeah. out there. And in any event, the uh, beneficial nematodes would take care of them. Would it? Well, uh, this is, this is the information I got. Um, um, and, and it said, uh, that they fly around, maybe they're big as a quarter. I don't know. They're everywhere in the tomatoes, in the squash, everywhere in the. They're just flying everywhere. They've been doing it for weeks, and so I finally ch- checked, and they did mention this side webworm, and they said they fly around and drop their eggs, and then then they make uh, like a a, a a worm with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Side webworms are just. Sod webworms are much more common up north. They're not real okay. common here, and that's a problem with so much Internet material. Other than DirtDoctor.com, I find most things I see on the Internet just are not real applicable here. But uh, regardless of what they are, I, I think it's a good time to put out some beneficial ne- nematodes just to control fleas and fire ants and all the other problematic things that are out there. But, uh, yeah. Um, uh, that's just the quickest way I know of uh, to take care of them without using anything toxic. Well, it uh, mentioned, and I think I got it from the dirt doctor, something about putting uh, 
spraying with uh, the, that they drop their eggs and then they form the the uh, the, the yeah the eggs hatch into and, the uh, caterpillar and then it goes through a yes, pupa stage and then makes the adult moth yes yeah and it said use uh, BT mm-hmm. to spray but I, I'm thinking when do those worms fall when would you use the BT you know what it's is, yeah know, I, it's I might be, yeah, it's it's related to weather more than anything else, and we're seeing a lot more different kinds of caterpillars this year because um, we've had so much more moisture than usual. Uh, you can certainly use the BT, and um, it's just that since they're down in the ground, um, I I just find the beneficial nematodes easier to use. And BT, I'm careful about spraying around because it, of course, kills all caterpillars. And there's such a, a very good movement to protect the monarchs as well as uh, the other butterflies that, um, you know, are endangered by current agricultural practices and things. But if you prefer to use the BT, it will certainly take care of a caterpillar like that. Uh, I I just like the uh, beneficial nematodes better because they well, use so many other things. Okay. Well, that's that's what I'm wondering because I, how would I know when to spray the BT anyway and it, Whenever, whenever you see the moths, yeah, whenever you see the moths, because they're getting ready, as you so accurately observe, to lay the eggs, which are going to make the caterpillars. BT has a relatively long shelf life or a very relatively long life in the environment, especially if you put a little bit of molasses with it. So um, if you're seeing the cat, seeing the moths, I'd very definitely head off the next generation. Oh, goodness, because I spray BT on the tom- tomatoes and on all the plants, and, of course, it takes it doesn't do a thing for the moths. I mean, they're just still flying around. Well, there's nothing. I've been here. Hmm? There, there's not anything other than birds that are going to take care of the adults. Uh, once you see the, uh, the adult moth flying around, I mean, some of these bug zappers, which I don't recommend, something like that would stop them. But once they've turned into the moths, nothing you spray is really going to do anything against them. Okay. You're just killing the next generation in the soil oh. before they can come okay. out. And, of course, I've got, uh, then, then I've had a huge hole, I mean, half my leaf of my eggplant. I've never had the, I've never had those moths before. I've never had the eggplant do this. I've had flea beetles, which I put mm-hmm. DE on, and that takes care of those. Right. But I've got uh, half the eggplant is gone, uh, just big leaves, you know, and, and it's uh, holes in the okra and everything, and uh, that's that's a big problem. Well, um, if you can, you know, go out at night with a flashlight, and you'll normally see what's causing that problem. If it's uh, caterpillars, you can use the BT, or you can use spinosad. There are also a lot of different beetles out there, yeah. and your diatomaceous earth will certainly take care of them. Um, I've been using something called spinosad soap which is a combination of insecticidal soap and spinosad. And I've used that on uh, stink bugs and a number of beetles, and uh, it uh, it certainly helps me control things in my garden. Yeah. Yeah, the spin, as a, I've, I've been using uh, anyway. Then I also have the stink bugs, which are running tomatoes. I've got more tomatoes this year. They're seven or eight foot tall. The oh, yeah. Are. yeah. And, and, and yet... The first bunch of them were just wonderful, and now I see all the stink bugs. Well, get uh, get I, some spinosad soap. That's the best thing I've found against the stink bugs. And it'll kill them. Yes, ma'am. It doesn't okay, kill them I instantly, but it will. Uh, it will certainly get them under control. 
Okay, because I, I don't have many on there, I, and it's hard to reach in those cages because it's made of vines are so thick this no. year, you can't see them. I, <laughs> I, made, I, made, I spray it with water, and they usually stink bugs will come to the top, but sure. you don't even see them. I may get one a day. And I'm sure there are more than that. Well, spray them with water to encourage them to come out in the open and then hit them with that spinosad soap, and you'll get them under control. I mean, even losing one or two tomatoes is too many tomatoes in my book. I want every tomato. I'm I'm greedy when it comes to my tomatoes. I don't want to share them with the stink bugs. Right, and and they they look beautiful uh, when they, you know, I've been pulling them off a little. Well, anyway, I'm having trouble with that, too. But, okay, the sideway worms. Uh, the you think the uh, beneficial nematodes is that's what I would use. You can use the BT if you like, but the beneficial nematodes yeah, is probably what I would use. Okay, that sounds that sounds like a that sounds like the answer I, I need. Okay. Carolyn, I appreciate Thank the you. call. Have a wonderful weekend. Okay. All right, back to gardening. We're going to talk to Lloyd and Leah, and Lloyd is up first. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good, good morning. Likewise. Uh, Yes, I've uh, got a, just a couple of questions here, I guess, and a response. But um, I had purchased a couple of uh, small crepe myrtles uh, at your great nursery mm-hmm. uh, about six weeks ago. And I just wanted to tell you they're just beautiful. They're well, blooming uh, just wonderful. Well, we'll take uh, credit for helping you with nice plants, and you take all the credit for giving them good care. That's what they ought to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, one question I've had, and I've, I've heard from a couple of different people different things, so I'm going to call and, and talk to the expert about this. I've got some oleander. They're the old-fashioned uh, red oleander. Mm-hmm. They're probably, Bob, about six years old, but they're over 10 feet tall. Right. And they haven't bloomed this year. Like, uh, like Actually, since the freeze a couple of years ago, um, they've been sporadic, and I've taken off the dead canes um, over the years, but I have never pruned them back. I heard that uh, some people prune them all the way back to maybe two or three feet above ground. Is What's your recommendation on that? Are these uh, are they out in full sun? They are. Okay, uh-huh. and you're fertilizing them regularly? Yes. What I do, I find that, you know, and they are late flowering this year. Uh, a lot of the tropicals are blooming now, but just all the clouds and a little cooler weather, the the standard oleanders just haven't put on as many flowers they will. I go through, and I don't like just giving the whole plant a haircut, but if they're getting oversized, I'll go through and just cut the, the big old long canes, the ones that have really gotten too big. I'll cut them down to maybe 18 inches high, but I usually do it selectively rather than just giving it a whole haircut and then letting it grow back out again. I, I find that I think the plant's a little nicer looking, and I'm not giving up that much flowering. Uh, I can keep them in bloom virtually all summer long, but I, I prefer selective pruning. I don't think it has a lot of effect on flowering. I think your crepe myrtles, when it gets hot and dry, it's going to, I'm not, not crepe myrtles, your oleanders, when it gets hot and dry, I think they're going to flower regardless of what you're doing. But if they're getting a little bit big, I just go through and thin them out a little bit and take out the, the biggest and longest stems and leave the others alone. Yeah, I, it, they make a great screen for us, so yeah. they can they can pretty much get as tall as they want. And I just I didn't know if it would hurt the flowering for the following year, uh, or you know, 
it does it does limit it and if you're using them for a screen you're not really gaining anything you're losing some of that screening effect so i just kind of go through and do what we call pluck prune just take out anything that's gotten oversized growing in a direction you don't want it and uh, i don't think there's anything to be gained by a real severe pruning it sounds wonderful well the only other comment i have is after living uh, listening to the show this morning it reminds me of how much patience you have. Uh. <laughs> you know, it's just gardening is gardening can be so much fun, but it can be so trying as well. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I know nothing that will it, if anybody gardens successfully, I can almost promise you they're a fairly patient person because that, they I, have to be. I think that's the little boy's prayers. Dear Lord, give me patience and please hurry. <laughs> you go have a good weekend it's always good to talk to you good to talk to you bob thank, thank you. you sir bye bye all right let's uh finish up the hour with leah good morning leah good morning three questions okay one my pincetta it's beautiful uh-huh. kept it in the box took it out about a month now the leaves have uh they're brittle or crumbled or eaten and i don't know why Question number two, my neighbors have lost their trees with this crazy weather we've been having. Yeah, just storm damage? Yes. I, all the way to the bottom, I have no problem with mine. I inherited my problem where I grew up, but the trees are very healthy. My dad planted them back almost, I'm going to say 65 to 70 years. They suggest I trim. I just want to leave them alone. I would leave them alone. I'm with you 100%. Uh, We had a lecture from a really good arborist recently, and he was showing us, uh, you know, in a diagram, how the more we prune on them, how the longer we make a bare trunk, the more likely they are to break in a storm. So, I prune only enough to, that I can walk underneath them, you know, and mow. I I think probably 80% of the people in the world at least uh, prune them excessively, and I think it leads to more storm damage, so I think you're doing it right. Thank you. Okay, and your third question? Dumping set out the leaves. Yeah. It well, the, perfect till I took it out. Um. Are they brown and crispy, or are they just eaten away a bit? What? Uh, how does the damage start? It looks like they've been eaten that way. At yeah. my suspicion is um, either a caterpillar or a grasshopper. There are so many caterpillars out there right now. That is probably what is doing it and you can get a little bit of uh, the bt spray mix a little bit of molasses with it it remains on the plant the caterpillars tend to come out at night when you don't see them but if you spray it in the afternoon or evening they come out and they take one bite off of a leaf that has the bacteria on it they stop feeding immediately and die fairly shortly Okay, should I bring it in since it was doing so well inside the house? Well, wherever you think it does best. I think they'd like a little time outside porch or patio, but um, uh, if you want to bring it in, if it's been doing well there and it's not, it's subjected to more problems outside, yeah, they can be fine as a houseplant as long as you have good light. Sounds like you know what you're doing with it. Well, with your guidance and listening to you, huge help. <laughs> and I did have one more question. Okay. When can I trim again my bushes? I mean, really trim them. What kind of bushes? 
Uh, I'm not nowhere near knowing what kind of bushes I've got. Like boxwood and pittosporum and viburnum, things like that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you can trim them right now. The only time that it's really bad to trim is uh, in the fall because we don't want to create a lot of soft new growth that would then freeze. But uh, you can do you can do a fair amount of pruning right now if you've got the energy. Just wear a big hat and drink plenty of fluids. But uh, get out and do your pruning this afternoon. It'll be just fine. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Don't dial right this second. Just uh, sit back and enjoy while I punch that button right there and say good morning, Howard Garrett. Good morning. How's everybody? Everybody, I think, is enjoying a good 4th of July weekend. I tell you, I know I'm a little confused about the days, <laughs> and that'll take probably a week or so to get over. But it's overall, it's it's uh, been pretty nice. I mean, it's not nearly as hot as it frequently is by the 4th of July, and things are growing and producing the vegetable garden. The flower garden's beautiful. There's just uh, not a lot to complain about in the world right now. It is interesting how much it throws you when there's a, a, a holiday in the middle of the uh, week. You really get so used to things a certain way. You know, we all we all do. I'm writing a, a column right now for Dallas Morning News, and I'm late getting in, actually, uh, because of the change in the week and all. But it's about little trees, and it's kind of a interesting thing to, to look at because a lot of people – uh, don't realize that some of the little trees, the understory trees, mm-hmm. uh, the ornamental trees, whatever we call them, there's a, a lot of options. Some are a lot better than others, and some of those trees can take sun or shade. Most interesting ones in that category are the palms, I guess. It's amazing uh-huh. to me how how much shade they can take, and some of those small growing ones work really well in, in shady gardens. I purchased a bunch of Mediterranean fan palms and windmill palms just this week. Wish we had a good source on Pendo and some of the other palms that you guys do so well with, but uh, they can be a little hard to find. Um, we oh, just yeah. we yeah. just don't have a lot of palm growers, but I'm with you at that. And, and our native sayballs uh, down in this part of the country, the uh, Sayball Miner, I mean, Roberta's got them growing all over her ranch and uh, – uh, the bigger ones you see over there at Palmetto State Park, they're they're a fun plant and uh, very, for the most part, trouble-free. They really are. The only negative about them is how slow-growing they are. you got to be a little bit uh, patient with them. But I've uh, I've got one of those, and I, I started just through accident looking at all the other palms and uh, on other gardens around, and, and it seems to me that any palm can grow in almost full shade. Mm-hmm. and do very well and it's kind of interesting when a plant can adapt that much you know my ginkgo's same thing the little, the little ginkgos that i have are just remarkably tough and in uh, in heavy heavy shade so you know i thought about that, that category yeah. that's uh that's a real interesting thought and i guess i really hadn't thought that much about it but uh gives them a lot of versatility a lot of different ways you can use them well, we've also got some that are kind of in the medium size uh, growing category, and and those are you know we talk about the Persian uh, ironwood a lot, the parodia, which is kind of hard to get, uh, unfortunately, and the red Canadian choke cherries in that category, and a little maple that I like a lot that you can handle kind of like a, a big Japanese maple, really, as far as giving it a little bit of protection to keep it from burning, maybe. 
late afternoon is the uh, paper bark maple. It has such beautiful exfoliating uh, bark. So does the Persian ironwood, by the mm-hmm. way. There's just huge chunks of the bark coming off right now. Some people would consider that kind of messy, but I like it. I think that's a feature of trees that uh, is very, very interesting to me. You know, sycamore, of course, has the same thing. Well, and even crepe myrtles. Oh, yeah. Some crepe myrtles have beautiful exfoliation. And the madrones, which uh, mm-hmm. don't find those very much in the trade. I think they're a little hard to germinate and get started. But, oh, there's there's so many pretty things out in nature there. And, and like you say, the understory trees, the smaller trees, uh, uh, even the red buds, um, I think, are, are a great tree. And uh, some of them, like the ones with the purple foliage, are so pretty. There are two or three new ones out. I don't think they've really caught on as well but uh good old texas redbud for a you know understory tree or a tree that'll take a little bit more sun i think is hard to beat i think they're tough the only thing i'm seeing uh, on some commercial pro- projects where they're having troubles when they've gotten planted too deep and mm-hmm. there's just a huge percentage that you know, were too deep when they came in and then the contractor set them and they settled a little bit more and when that happens they're going to get borers and they're going to start getting stress, and it's going to lead to other things. So just keep them nice and high, and they'll be they'll be fine. And the small ones that it's interesting about trees too, because some trees can take absolutely no shade at all. They'll just punch out on you. You know, desert willow, mesquite trees. You know, crape myrtles just really suffer if they have any any uh, any shade at all. But just so many of them can take uh, either condition. The Mexican buckeye, the Mexican uh, plum can take either uh, either way. Some of the dogwoods, especially the rough leaf dogwood, which mm-hmm. I'm putting in this list, oh, good. can grow in sun or shade. They're outstanding. I put rusty black hall viburnum in that group. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah, that's a great one. And and it's another native one. Uh, yeah, I, well, this, look, I look forward to, to seeing the column. <laughs> And as always, it's just so educational, and it just brings up all the diversity that we have available to us. And so often, the uh, especially the home builders just don't take advantage of it. It's so discouraging to drive through a neighborhood, and the diversity just isn't there. Everybody has the same thing, and then you run into a problem with that one particular plant. Like people, you know, had the the chestnut blight a few years ago, Dutch elm disease, and oak wilt here in. Uh, the hill country just tells you how important diversity is. I think some of the biggest problems that we run into are just creating monocultures. I think that's a lot of what led to the elm problem, mm-hmm. you know, Dutch elm disease. Oh, yeah. No, it's what is the biggest problem uh, with uh, oak wilt. And I think <clears throat> some of the other things that we get when we get invasive pests in, they're, they're in most cases, if you look at what's going on, they're attacking these monocultures or semi-monocultures that have been set up. Somebody was doing a lecture one time from the Forest Service, and it was pretty fascinating. I, th- I think that I took a picture of the slide he was using because it was so dramatic, but he was talking about pine bark beetle. Yeah. And he was showing an aerial view of this big mass of trees that was turning brown and going downhill quickly because of the beetle. And it, it, it just hit me right in the face. The trees are all in rows. Right. And I asked him, 
I said, do you really see as many problems with the native trees with the pine bark as the ones that have been planted, like you're showing there? And he said, no, most of it is with the, you know, with the uh, the planted trees. Now that's not 100 percent. It when there's drought and when there's other environmental factors that are really throwing heavy stress on the plants, it gets some of the native or a lot of the native plants too. But big big percentages of them are in the planted. Uh, hybrid trees well and it's going to be interesting to watch too on on things like the big yellowstone fire of 1989 when you go through those areas a lot of those forests are coming back as monocultures because you know there's one species of conifer that just outgrows everything Uh else Uh over time the others the diversity seems to come in but uh uh, you're exactly right and it's it's going to be very interesting to to watch and see but uh and monoculture is just whether it's grass whether it's trees whether anything it's just it's just not natural yeah some of the other plants that are interesting too i was noticing two of my neighbors uh keep planting um yuccas in some shady situations and boy they just really struggle with that yeah. situation uh the um uh, uh, aloe vera, on the other hand, which, you know, in commercial operations and where it likes it the mm-hmm. most is grown in full sun, but it's a plant that you can grow inside in a container. Oh, yeah. It can grow in shade very, very well. Doesn't doesn't seem to mind it at all. But the agaves and the yuccas, um, both, you know, you start up their toes <laughs> if you stick, uh, if you get them out of the full sun. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's interesting to me, too, talking about how important that root flare exposure is, that there are a lot of trees, especially when you get into some of the more forested areas, that the seeds don't germinate well if they land in the soil. The seeds germinate and grow better on a decaying tree trunk, which guarantees that that root flare, that all the roots are going to start out well exposed. And that's how Mother Nature, that's how things evolved over the eons um, to ensure that they were, you know, that the root flare was exposed. And uh, I don't see that as much walking through the woods around here, but boy, you go up in the Northwest and place like that, places like that, and, and look at how the redwoods and how a lot of those other trees have to germinate above ground level if they're going to do well. That's right. That's right. Anyway, a lot of fun looking at them different things they're all i guess animals are the same in a lot of ways, but the plants really do have some interesting variety you never get tired of studying them all i had a, a question for you this week being a texas tech graduate we talk about a and m and how they are uh if well let's just say they just don't encourage organics how is texas tech about that and the the reason that i ask that question i get the rural co-op magazine since i buy my power from a co-op and they there was a long very nice article in the most recent issue about uh texas tech is now offering a a degree program in small-time agriculture and uh, basically growing for farm-to-market and things like that. And they talk about sustainable, but they don't mention the word organic one single time in a five- or six-page article. And are they as as anti-organic as um, A&M and some of the other places are? Well, let me tell you a little story. I may have told it to you, but it's been a long time if, if I have. There's a golf course there called mm-hmm. the Rawls Golf Course. Uh-huh. 
this fellow Rawls built the money, and it was built on the campus there. And uh, the young superintendent by the name of Eric Johnson, I had heard that he was doing an organic program there, and this was, gosh, time I can't keep up with time anymore. It was probably ten years ago, <laughs> which means it I might have been fifteen. Him. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Eight or ten, probably in that range, though. But I called him. And I said, "I'd love to come see what you're doing." He said, "Great, come out." And we uh, we actually got to play the course, and it was just gorgeous. The turf was beautiful. Uh, he was doing a great job. And I said, "You know what's your program?" And he was basically fertilizing with fertigation. He was injecting into his fer- to his uh, uh, irrigation system his own version of Garrett juice. Mm. And uh, that was it. He was 100% organic, with the exception of uh, some firing issues, and I tried to help him with that. You know, uh-huh. a lot of times you just get, you know, your mind stuck in a direction <laughs> that, that something won't work, and, and don't talk to somebody about some alternatives. And I talked to him about that. And just it was incredible how beautiful the turf was. You know, 100% organic. It had been written up in a couple of uh, of major magazines. I said, I said, is the uh, the school um, helped working with you and supporting and involved in, in everything, the uh, ag department, the turf department and everything. He looked at me and kind of paused, and he said, Howard, he said, not only are they not interested, he said one of the professors will not let any of his students come out and work as an intern on the golf course and even see what's going on. Oh, man. No, I don't think you told me that story. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of a slap upside the head. That, you know, you think, how can people be so close-minded? Yep. And then the worst part of the story is that uh, Rawls, the guy who put the money up, decided that the uh, Troon uh, mm-hmm. management company should come in and take it over, which which they did. And they brought in their own superintendent, and he lost his job. And the last time I talked to him, he was going to go back and get a master's degree, and he wasn't even in the industry anymore. But that that just just you know a perfect example of what we're dealing with. I tell people all the time, yeah, I'm rough on A and M, and we all we all are, are, are all the organic friends pretty much are because A and M is so negative about organics to a great degree. But tech is is worse is as bad or worse, and other major universities around the country are as well. That's what created the need for Torque and the yeah. online course oh, yeah. that yeah. we have uh, established. Well, that's that's interesting, and I it it to me it's it's just such a just a contradiction that they want to talk about sustainable, but then they want to use conventional agriculture, and the two just don't go hand in hand. And I've on the one hand, tech has been very progressive. Uh, one of our managers' son got a degree basically in wind energy there, and they're the only school around that you can get a degree I know of in water law. They are so progressive in some ways and so backwards in others. I know it, it's amazing. One of the one of our uh, I can't remember if it was a governor or uh, one of the Texas politician uh, uh, political guys was raising money for. Uh, Tech. He was a politician, and then he became the chancellor at Tech. And he, mm-hmm. he and his wife called me for breakfast one time to talk about, you know, they wanted to talk to this guy who's an alum that has a radio program. And they were, <laughs> what was on their mind was, you know, raising money. And we got to talking about organics. And I said, you know, if, 
if you could get the departments out there, ag departments to go organic, they'd have this huge advantage on the other universities, mm-hmm. especially uh, uh, A&M. And he slapped it. I explained it to him how it would work and everything. And they were about to do the Rawls Golf Course. And they were about to do a, a new master plan for the campus. He remember it like it was yesterday. He slapped the table and said, "By God, we're going to do that. That's a great idea." <laughs> and I said, "Let me warn you about two things. When you go back to tech and start talking to the professors about this idea, they're going to tell you two things. One is Howard Garrett is the devil, and two, it's the stupidest idea I've ever heard of." I never heard from him again. I I did hear from one of the professors who called me and said, great idea to start teaching organics. We want to do it with you, but we want to do it online. Hmm. And they were all fired up to get it going, and it was going to be a a big, important deal. And it just one day went poof and was gone and was never done. I, yeah. No, we're not doing all that well at Tech. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I do have, you know, Texas State up in San Marcos. I, I, there is a little, I don't know about good news for what they actually do, but have a good friend up there who is actually teaching teachers and uh, to, you know, and has developed a curriculum that is organic, is natural. It, it's much more than just agriculture. So I'm, I'm hoping that there's a bright spot there, but I was just hoping that maybe Texas Tech had seen the light or something. It's it's a real nice article in the little Rural Energy magazine that I get from uh, as a result of being part of Bandera Electric Co-op. But uh, I just thought it was interesting. They they want to talk sustainability, but never one place. It was saying, well, people are demanding heirloom varieties and all this, that, and the other. And... uh, and it's just so funny they didn't even, they didn't even mention organics one time, but I guess that well, kind of explains over it. And start talking organics and and admit that it works. You know they have a very difficult time defending <laughs> the you know the use of chemicals and the high sure. nitrogen fertilizers. The two terms besides sustainable, I don't like the word sustainable at all. The yep. other one I have as big a problem with, and, and even more so that's used by a lot of universities is. IPM, yep. Integrated Pest Management, that totally leaves out mm-hmm. the soil. Yep. You know, the the main thing that we're talking about, it talks about how to kill bugs and diseases. It doesn't talk about anything about, you know, prevention and, and how you really uh, avoid the problems in the first place. Well, and I wish that, uh, and, and hopefully it'll gain a little more traction uh the Acres folks have been doing some real interesting articles focusing on carbon and the importance of carbon in the soil and the importance of building carbon in the soil, and uh, it's just a total diametric opposite. They those folks are are so focused on building the soil, and uh, there may be some negatives there, but I I haven't really found them yet. I'm I'm really impressed with what the Acres folks are doing as far as trying to educate farmers and people and. I don't know how much impact they're having, but they're they're putting out some real good literature right now. Well, there's independent people all across the country and around the world. They're doing great work. It's just that the uh, the the university systems, which you know have a, a lot of control on the minds of people going, coming out and going out into business, are still really uh, in charge. So, well, and you know, even ARS, the US, USDA, especially when Joe Bradford was there, there was mm-hmm. a a lot of organic stuff going on, and Joe was, you know, the leader of that. Well, he got offered 
not offered, but he got early retirement, you know, and a lot of the research that he was working on just kind of vanished one day. Well, so it's it's common. It's, yeah, and it's just, you know, the so much of the, quote, research is supported by the Monsantos of the world and the ConAgras of the world, and money is power. I mean, they, sure. these people that, uh, that, that rely on their money are going to, lockstep in whatever they say and i think that's one of the things came out one of these last uh trials one of the big settlements against mayor monsanto is that uh they actually had what they called a hit squad that was uh their job was to discredit anybody that uh spoke anti roundup in any way and find ways to discredit them find ways to embarrass them try try everything you can to uh knock them down and uh, I think that's that's unfortunately the same thing that goes on um, at the level with universities and things is oh we're just and and you know the uh, uh, our uh, state nurserymen's association is exactly the same way they have so many chemical ads in that magazine they simply will not let anything organic uh, get into it and that's why we dropped our membership a number of years ago and said you know you're just not our organization anymore and uh, because the uh maryland good the former i think uh, editor of their magazine had uh, ask us to write articles, ask us to provide her with more articles about organics. And we wrote a very non-controversial introductory article, and they put a big disclaimer at the top of it that said, this organization does not necessarily support or believe uh, in the views expressed herein. And uh, that went downhill in a hurry. They never called and asked for anything else, and that was shortly about the time we canceled our membership, but uh, it's amazing the power of the, of the of the dollar that these chemical companies have, and how free they are to wield it to try to do away with anybody that wants to offer any uh, alternative view, regardless of how good it is for the world and the environment in general. Well, I had the same experience with uh, what's now the only Texas magazine on uh, gardening that's left that I know of, and <clears throat> they. Um, they told me that I was talking about things in my column that uh, didn't have university support, you know, the land-grant university mm -hmm. uh, backing, and so I couldn't write those kind of things, and we ended our uh, relationship <laughs> real quickly. There's a new owner of that magazine now, and I don't think they're a whole lot better, if any. If they are better, I would stand corrected and would love to see what they're doing, but I don't think that they uh, are. I'll In the meantime, we'll just all keep doing it right and making uh, and things we'll, healthier and having more fun. We'll we'll have our, our radio shows with ten times the audience of the other guys and uh, our websites that uh, just do it the right way. And it'd be interesting to know, and I'm, I'm sure they do readership surveys, but I'd be willing to bet that uh, your article in the Dallas paper is probably far more widely spread more widely read than uh, some of the uh shall we say the conflicting views supported by <laughs> by another author there it'd be be real interesting you know i hear nothing but good in fact my aunt has started uh clipping and sending me uh, a lot of your columns saying i just want to be sure that you got to read this and she says her friends just love your columns in the express news so uh or, I mean, in the Dallas Morning News. So be interesting well, I, to know. I, I appreciate that. They can all read them in, uh, online. We'll exactly. put that in our newsletter, you know, a link to it right after it runs in the paper. So you can see my little trees 
uh, article next. And I will look forward to doing it. And uh, you get out and enjoy this weekend, and we'll try to keep Saturday, Sunday, and Monday straight in our heads and uh, get back to a little bit uh, <laughs> a little bit more normal schedule next week. Well, I hope everybody is uh, having a good 4th of July. I did the very patriotic thing day before yesterday of shooting 76. How's that for a perfect uh, score to shoot on July the 4th? And of of the great commemorative of way back a few years ago in uh, in a year that ended with 76. So uh, that's, a, that's a good round of golf and a good patriotic thing to do. Enjoy it, Bob. See you guys next week. Look forward to it. Thanks, Howard. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. I hope you uh, uh, check out his website, dirtdoctor.com. Just in my opinion, it is by far the best on the Internet and one of the few places that you will get information that truly is applicable to South Texas. All right. Phone lines are full. We're going to talk to Al and Paul and Linda and Evelyn. And Al managed to call in first. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, question about uh, revitalizing the turf on my yard. I've got uh, parts of the yard look pretty good and other parts are kind of sparse. And uh, I've got good looking clumps of grass and then areas that are bare. And it kind of looks to me like the uh, nutrients in the uh, turf are, are not what they need to be. Let me tell you what I did. I put down three cubic yards of compost this spring. Okay. And then I put down about four bags of that Texas tea, and I've done two treatments of the Scott's Liquid Turf Builder. And uh, I went out the next day or so, and it didn't look any different. So I'm looking for a miracle cure. Okay. Well, stay away from the Scott stuff. That is undoing a lot of the good that you've created because oh, it's really? very, yeah, it's very antimicrobial. Unfortunately, things don't happen overnight. You have done exactly what, you know, I would do. Um, I would probably spray it down with Garrett juice, and you don't have to mix your own. You can actually buy Garrett juice. You've put all the raw materials in place. You brought in a fair amount of microbial life with your compost. You brought in some good nutrients. You brought in some good fertilizer with your Texas tea. And what we need to do is just kind of activate all that stuff and get the soil get all the soil microbial life really built up. And about the only thing I would do now, I would be fertilizing on a quarterly basis. I don't know when you put your Texas tea on, but, um, and you might, you might jump over this time and use Medina. You might jump over next time and use uh, Nature's Creation because they're based on three entirely different nutrient sources. And this is just going to give you, you know, even more diversity out there. If I were going to add any things, like I say, I, I would definitely spray the yard down with her, uh, Garrett juice. I do that about once a month. If you have any areas where you don't feel like uh, the color of the grass is that good, get some of the Ladybug Magic Stand. There's still plenty of it out there and spread a little bit of that around the area. That has done more uh, in my yard and vegetable garden to green things up than anything that I've ever used. So uh, uh, I, I think you're off to a real good start. Like I say, maybe a little magic sand, definitely some Garrett juice, and I think you'll see a big turnaround in that yard. It's not going to happen overnight, though, and we're just talking about patience and how hard it is to have as a gardener. 
but uh, it it just takes a little while for everything to kick into gear. The good news is that once it does, uh, your input's going to be minimal. It's going to pretty much start taking care of itself. Well, that's that's good news. Hey, Bob, I had one other question. Yes, I'm sir. getting ready to put down a uh, pallet of grass. Uh-huh. And uh, I've got the soil prepared as far as loosening it up, and uh, you know it's it's thick. The the soil is about five inches thick, so it should be a good base for it. Yes, sir. Anything else I need to do to prepare for putting down the grass? I go ahead and put some organic fertilizer down. Um, organic fertilizer does not stress plants. It does not create the water uptake the way your synthetic fertilizers do. And I think it's good to have it underneath the sod. And, of course, when you put your saw down, uh, the most important thing you do is use one of these uh, water-fillable rollers to roll it. You're not trying to level it. What you're doing is taking out any air pockets between the sod and the soil underneath. So I consider rolling to be the most important part of putting out a uh, new saw. But, no, I'd, I'd put some organic fertilizer underneath, put your grass out, roll it, and then um, get into a good watering pattern. So you're, you're talking about the Texas tea then? Uh, Texas Tea or Medina or uh, Nature's Creation, any of those would be just fine. Okay. Well, thank you for the information. I appreciate that. Take some pictures before and after. I think you're going to see a big change. <laughs> well, I need to do that, yeah. It, it changes so slowly that it's hard to notice. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's why it's always good to document it. Al, it's always good to talk to you. You call anytime we can help. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, uh, next up is Paul. Good morning, Paul. Hey, Bob. I work for a sod farm, and uh, I appreciate what you just said there as far as uh, putting down a good organic fertilizer underneath and then rolling it. That's what I tell people all the time, and that really does help give it some good root stimulation, gets it to take into there. I'm glad Um, to have that that verification. Yes, sir. Um, I got a couple of questions. Uh, I put down uh, beneficial nematodes. probably March mm-hmm. and every my backyard was looking great. I didn't have ants or bugs or anything. And now I've got two big ant hills in my backyard. Uh, is it just time to put down some more? Maybe I missed an area or. Well, the thing about beneficial nematodes is as long as they find a prey organism, in other words, they don't just lay their eggs in the soil. They actually lay their eggs into uh, a grub worm or an ant or a you know whatever larval state that they are parasitizing, they say two nematodes get together in a grub worm, they can produce a hundred thousand offspring. But once the prey organisms, once their numbers have been knocked down, then the uh, nematode numbers start going down. The average uh, or the most species and your better nematode products will have six or seven species of nematode in there but they only live about 60 days so if you've done a really good job of wiping out all the bad guys then the numbers on the nematodes start going down again so i think it's up to you if all you have is a couple of mounds you might want to go out and just spot treat because there's so many fire ants around they just every time we get a rain you know more queens form and uh, they spread around so much. If if I had just a couple of mounds show up, I would be tempted just to go out and hit those mounds with orange oil or mound drench or something like that. 
if I have more mounds show up, if I start having fleas, if I start having an indication that, uh, you know, that I need to put out more nematodes, I would do that. But um, I think at this point, just the numbers on the fire ants is just kind of a little overwhelming. And, and in my yard, well, I'm actually doing this because I put out the nematodes a while back. I still have a couple of fire ant mounds, and they just got blasted with orange oil, and they're dead and gone now. But I, I wouldn't be rushing to put out more nematodes, but I would be watching things carefully. Okay. And then uh, I planted some, uh, I think they're called purple cow peas okay. in my garden this yeah. year. Um I didn't know what they were. My kid picked the packet. I said, sure, we got room. Well, these things are, like, producing. <laughs> What's, what do I do with them, Bob? Do I wait till they're purple and pick them and then, like, you know, dry them for the beans or the peas out of them? No. they pick them when they're green? And I, I, would, them, you know? I would pick them. They will start to yellow slightly. And uh, that's you, you will want to shell them. You will want to eat the little peas inside. Uh, rather than the whole thing, these are not an edible pod bean, so to speak. So you're gonna, you're just gonna take your your thumb and basically zip down along that, and, and just do them. You're, you're just basically a type of a black-eyed pea. And uh, up north, they feed them to cattle. Us good Southerners know what good things black-eyed peas are. But leave them on when when you notice them first starting to dis- discolor in yellow. That's the time you want to pick them and shell those peas out. And it's a great thing for your kids to learn to do. Okay, and then so the purple, the ones that have gone purple, just taken. Take those off and then use those for seeds to replant again. Well, you can do that as seeds or open them up. If the if the little peas have gotten hard, yeah, save those for seed. If they're still soft and moist, then uh, have yourself a good uh, put a couple of jalapenos with them and uh, have some good uh, peas tonight. Perfect. Well, my garden's coming along, Bob. Um, you gave me the advice on the mason bee houses, and I'm starting to actually had two successful um, <laughs> picks of zucchinis that are actually. You know, looking like good zucchinis. Good. So I, I've noticed. I mean, your your information really helps us Yankees come down here and figure things out. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure being here for you. Call me anytime I can help, Paul. And uh, thanks for thanks for the verification on uh, how you would do the sod. I look forward to visiting again. Thank you, sir. Yes, sir. Bye. Bye. Right now, we're talking gardening. We're going to finish up with Linda and Evelyn. And Linda is up first. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing this morning? I'm okay, thank you. Good. I have a a unique little problem here. I rescued a mama cat and her two kittens in my back acre. Okay. And they, I started feeding the mama cat, and then I started feeding the babies after they were able to eat hard food. Uh huh. But now they're uh, in my back patio, and I have an eight by eight area that uh, was just soil. Mm-hmm. And I would weed eat it and keep the weeds off of it. But the kitty cats are doing their thing in that area. Mm-hmm. And what I would like to, to know is what can I put in that 8 by 8 area so that it will deter them from going there? Uh, would it be, I, somebody said, nothing soft. And well, I did put them mulch, but that was soft, and they dug right through it and yep. did their thing. Um, if you want, a put, want to put down a mulch material, get pecan shells. Some of these companies around that crack pecans, if you look up the places mm-hmm. that offer to crack pecans and shell them, um, uh-huh. they either give away or sell at a very low price uh, the cracked pecan shells. And they're a great mulch. They're good for 
very good for the soil, but again, they're rough enough that the cats don't like uh, digging around in there to do their business. The other uh-huh. choice is lava rock. I was out at Sun and Soil Depot the other day, and they actually have the lava gravel, and that's the same way the cats don't like digging in that. So if you want to keep them out of that area, either one of those things would be a good material to put down as a mulch. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, I will do that. So you said Home Depot? No, no, Stone and Soil Depot. Stone and Soil Depot. Yes. Okay, I can do that. And then right there in that same little area, I have a small um, crepe myrtle. Uh-huh. Out. What do I do to uh, allow the, the what, uh, the sun, the, the roots, everything to be the way it needs to be so that it'll survive and not, I won't... Um, well, you know, having either of these mulches around is not going to hurt a thing. At some point, okay. you need to dig around the base and be sure that that crepe myrtle is not buried too deeply that you actually see the major roots flaring out from the trunk. But uh-huh. that crepe myrtle just loves sun, loves occasional yeah. water, and loves little fertilizer. So it it pretty much will take care of itself. Do check to be sure the root flare is exposed. And when you put out your uh-huh. pecan shells or lava rock, don't put it right up against the trunk. Stay maybe six inches away from the trunk, and your crepe myrtle should love it. Okay, great. Now, will Fanix have the pecan shells or not? You'll have to call them. Call them I them. don't know. Six four eight one three zero three is their phone number. I think it'll more likely be somebody like Papes or one of the big pecan houses that you know offers okay. people bringing your pecans and they'll shell them for you. And uh, then they're giving you back the nut meats, and then they have to do something to get rid of the shells. So uh, okay. that's the place you're most likely going to find those, uh, Linda. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I so appreciate that. It's my so great pleasure. That. You have a wonderful weekend, and I will finish up with Evelyn. Good morning, Evelyn. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I don't have a flea problem, but I'm starting to have a, a mite problem. So I wanted to spray the area where the chickens are, and I wanted to use spinosad. Is that a good idea? That would be a fine idea. Okay. What what do I use? How many ounces or what gallon? I can't understand the... Yeah, you're going to use about a little over an ounce per gallon, probably one and a half ounces per gallon. And I would keep the chickens off of it until it's dry, and then it should be just fine. Okay, and water it down first? Um, yeah, that would be, I don't think that's absolutely necessary, but I, uh, just, just moisten it. I, I, I wouldn't get it, you know, muddy by any means, but I, uh-huh. I just moisten it down and then, uh, then just spray your spinosad soap, allow it to dry and put the girls back in there. Okay. And on the, on the birds themselves, I used, uh, uh, diatomaceous or is that a good idea? I don't know what it will do for mites. It'll do a lot for the chicken fleas and some of the others. We're going to have to ask Dr. Kirby about that tomorrow, but uh, certainly won't hurt. And it will like it'll take care of another number of problems. But I don't know if it what is if it's going to do much against the mites. Uh huh. Okay. I thank you so much. Well, it's always one and a half ounces per gallon. <laughs> uh, one and a half ounces per gallon. Yes, on the spinosad okay. soap. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank uh-huh. you for the call. Uh-huh. Bye.